BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Book Two, Chapters Eighteen through Twenty-Nine of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Two, Chapter Eighteen. I will therefore pause and adduce the testimony of Sallust himself, whose words in praise of the Romans, that equity and virtue prevailed among them not more by force of laws than of nature, have given occasion to this discussion. He was referring to that period immediately after the expulsion of the kings, in which the city became great in an incredibly short space of time. And yet this same writer acknowledges in the first book of his history, in the very exordium of his work, that even at that time, when a very brief interval had elapsed after the government had passed from kings to consuls, the more powerful men began to act unjustly, and occasioned the defection of the people from the patricians and other disorders in the city. For after Sallust had stated that the Romans enjoyed greater harmony and a purer state of society between the Second and Third Punic Wars than at any other time, and that the cause of this was not their love of good order, but their fear lest the peace they had with Carthage might be broken, this also, as we mentioned, Nasica contemplated, when he opposed the destruction of Carthage, for he supposed that fear would tend to repress wickedness and to preserve wholesome ways of living, he then goes on to say, Yet after the destruction of Carthage, discord, avarice, ambition, and the other vices which are commonly generated by prosperity, more than ever increased. If they increased, and that more than ever, then already they had appeared, and had been increasing. And so Sallust adds this reason for what he said. For, he says, the oppressive measures of the powerful, and the consequent secessions of the plebes from the patricians, and other civil dissensions, had existed from the first, and affairs were administered with equity and well-tempered justice for no longer a period than the short time after the expulsion of the kings, while the city was occupied with the serious Tuscan war and Tarquin's vengeance. 
You see how, even in that brief period after the expulsion of the kings, fear, he acknowledges, was the cause of the interval of equity and good order. They were afraid, in fact, of the war which Tarquin waged against them, after he had been driven from the throne in the city, and had allied himself with the Tuscans. But observe what he adds. After that the patricians treated the people as their slaves, ordering them to be scourged or beheaded, just as the kings had done, driving them from their holdings and harshly tyrannizing over those who had no property to lose. The people, overwhelmed by these oppressive measures, and most of all by exorbitant usury, and obliged to contribute both money and personal service to the constant wars, at length took arms and seceded to Mount Aventine and Mount Caesar, and thus obtained for themselves tribunes and protective laws. But it was only the second Punic War that put an end on both sides to discord and strife. You see what kind of men the Romans were, even so early as a few years after the expulsion of the kings, and it is of these men, he says, that equity and virtue prevailed among them not more by force of law than of nature. Now if these were the days in which the Roman Republic shows fairest and best, what are we to say or think of the succeeding age, when, to use the words of the same historian, changing little by little from the fair and virtuous city it was, it became utterly wicked and dissolute? This was, as he mentions, after the destruction of Carthage. Sallust's brief son and sketch of this period may be read in his own history, in which he shows how the profligate manners which were propagated by prosperity resulted at last even in civil wars. He says, And from this time the primitive manners, instead of undergoing an insensible alteration, as hitherto they had done, were swept away as by a torrent. The young men were so depraved by luxury and avarice, that it may justly be said that no father had a son who could either preserve his own patrimony, or keep his hands off other men's. Sallust adds a number of particulars about the vices of Scylla, and the debased condition of the republic in general, and other writers make similar observations, though in much less striking language. However, I suppose you now see, or at least any one who gives his attention has the means of seeing, in what a sink of iniquity that city was plunged before the advent of our heavenly king. For these things happened not only before Christ had begun to teach, but before he was even born of the virgin. If, then, they dare not impute to their gods the grievous evils of those former times, more tolerable before the destruction of Carthage, but intolerable and dreadful after it, although it was the gods who by their malign craft instilled into the minds of men the conceptions from which such dreadful vices branched out on all sides, why do they impute these present calamities to Christ, who teaches life-giving truth, and forbids us to worship false and deceitful gods, and who, abominating and condemning with his divine authority, those wicked and hurtful lusts of men, gradually withdraws his own people from a world that is corrupted by these vices, and is falling into ruins, to make of them an eternal city, whose glory rests not on the acclamations of vanity, but on the judgment of truth. CHAPTER Nineteen. Here, then, is this Roman Republic, which has changed little by little from the fair and virtuous city it was, and has become utterly wicked and dissolute. It is not I who am the first to say this, but their own authors, from whom we learned it for a fee, and who wrote it long before the coming of Christ. You see how, before the coming of Christ, and after the destruction of Carthage, the primitive manners, instead of undergoing insensible alteration, as hitherto they had done, were swept away as by a torrent, and how depraved by luxury and avarice the youth were. 
Let them now, on their part, read to us any laws given by their gods to the Roman people, and directed against luxury and avarice. And would that they had only been silent on the subjects of chastity and modesty, and had not demanded from the people indecent and shameful practices, to which they lent a pernicious patronage by their so-called divinity. Let them read our commandments in the prophets, gospels, acts of the apostles, or epistles. Let them peruse the large number of precepts against avarice and luxury, which are everywhere read to the congregations that meet for this purpose, and which strike the ear not with the uncertain sound of a philosophical discussion, but with the thunder of God's own oracle pealing from the clouds. And yet they do not impute to their gods the luxury and avarice, the cruel and dissolute manners, that had rendered the republic utterly wicked and corrupt even before the coming of Christ. But whatever affliction their pride and effeminacy have exposed them to in these latter days, they furiously impute to our religion. If the kings of the earth and all their subjects, if all princes and judges of the earth, if young men and maidens, old and young, every age, and both sexes, if they whom the Baptist addressed, the publicans and the soldiers, were all together to hearken and observe the precepts of the Christian religion regarding a just and virtuous life, then should the republic adorn the whole earth with its own felicity, and attain in life everlasting to the pinnacle of kingly glory. But because this man listens, and that man scoffs, and most are enamoured of the blandishments of vice rather than the wholesome severity of virtue, the people of Christ, whatever be their condition, whether they be kings, princes, judges, soldiers, or provincials, rich or poor, bond or free, male or female, are enjoined to endure this earthly republic, wicked and dissolute as it is, that so they may, by this endurance, win for themselves an eminent place in that most holy and august assembly of angels, and republic of heaven, in which the will of God is the law. CHAPTER Twenty. But the worshippers and admirers of these gods delight in imitating their scandalous iniquities, and are nowise concerned that the republic be less depraved and licentious. Only let it remain undefeated, they say, only let it flourish and abound in resources, let it be glorious by its victories, or still better, secure in peace. And what matters it to us? This is our concern, that every man be able to increase his wealth, so as to supply his daily prodigalities, and so that the powerful may subject the weak for their own purposes. Let the poor court the rich for a living, and that, under their protection, they may enjoy a sluggish tranquillity, and let the rich abuse the poor as their dependents, to minister to their pride. Let the people applaud not those who protect their interests, but those who provide them with pleasure. Let no severe duty be commanded, no impurity forbidden. Let kings estimate their prosperity not by the righteousness, but by the servility of their subjects. Let the provinces stand loyal to the kings, not as moral guides, but as lords of their possessions and purveyors of their pleasures, not with a hearty reverence, but a crooked and servile fear. Let the laws take cognizance rather of the injury done to another man's property, than of that done to one's own person. If a man be a nuisance to his neighbor, or injure his property, family, or person, let him be actionable, but in his own affairs let every one with impunity do what he will in company with his own family, and with those who willingly join him. Let there be a plentiful supply of public prostitutes for every one who wishes to use them, but specially for those who are too poor to keep one for their private use. Let there be erected houses of the largest and most ornate description. In these let there be provided the most sumptuous banquets, where every one who pleases may, by day or night, play, drink, vomit, dissipate. Let there be everywhere heard the rustling of dancers, the loud, immodest laughter of the theatre. Let a succession of the most cruel and the most voluptuous pleasures maintain a perpetual excitement. 
If such happiness is distasteful to any, let him be branded as a public enemy, and if any attempt to modify or put an end to it, let it be silenced, banished, put an end to. Let these be reckoned the true gods who procure for the people this condition of things, and preserve it when once possessed. Let them be worshipped as they wish. Let them demand whatever games they please, from or with their own worshippers. Only let them secure that such felicity be not imperiled by foe, plague, or disaster of any kind. What sane man would compare a republic such as this, I will not say to the Roman Empire, but to the palace of Sardanopolis, the ancient king who was so abandoned to pleasures that he caused it to be inscribed on his tomb, that now that he was dead he possessed only these things which he had swallowed and consumed by his appetites while alive? If these men had such a king as this, who, while self-indulgent, should lay no severe restraint on them, they would more enthusiastically consecrate to him a temple and a flamen than the ancient Romans did to Romulus. Chapter 21. But if our adversaries do not care how foully and disgracefully the Roman Republic be stained by corrupt practices, so long only as it holds together and continues in being, and if they therefore pooh-pooh the testimony of Sallust to its utterly wicked and profligate condition, what will they make of Cicero's statement that even in his time it had become entirely extinct, and that there remained extant no Roman Republic at all? He introduces Scipio, the Scipio who had destroyed Carthage, discussing the Republic, at a time when already there were presentiments of its speedy ruin by that corruption which Sallust describes. In fact, at the time when the discussion took place, one of the Gracchi, who, according to Sallust, was the first great instigator of seditions, had already been put to death. His death, indeed, is mentioned in the same book. Now Scipio, at the end of the second book, says, as among the different sounds which proceed from lyres, flutes, and the human voice, there must be maintained a certain harmony which a cultivated ear cannot endure to hear disturbed or jarring, but which may be elicited in full and absolute concord by the modulation even of voices very unlike one another. So, where reason is allowed to modulate that adverse elements of the state, there is obtained a perfect concord from the upper, lower, and middle classes, as from various sounds and what musicians call harmony in singing is concord in matters of state, which is the strictest bond and best security of any republic, and which by no ingenuity can be retained where justice has become extinct. Then, when he had expatiated somewhat more fully, and had more copiously illustrated the benefits of its presence and the ruinous effects of its absence upon a state, Pilus, one of the company present at the discussion, struck in and demanded that the question should be more thoroughly sifted, and that the subject of justice should be freely discussed for the sake of ascertaining what truth there was in the maxim which was then becoming daily more current, that the Republic cannot be governed without injustice. Scipio expressed his willingness to have this maxim discussed and sifted, and gave it as his opinion that it was baseless, and that no progress could be made in discussing the Republic unless it was established, not only that this maxim, that the Republic cannot be governed without injustice, was false, but also that the truth is, that it cannot be governed without the most absolute justice. And the discussion of this question, being deferred till the next day, is carried on in the third book with great animation. For Pilus himself undertook to defend the position that the Republic cannot be governed without injustice, at the same time being at special pains to clear himself of any real participation in that opinion. He advocated with great keenness the cause of injustice against justice, and endeavoured by plausible reasons and examples to demonstrate that the former is beneficial, the latter useless, to the Republic. Then, at the request of the company, Laelius attempted to defend justice, 
and strained every nerve to prove that nothing is so hurtful to a state as injustice, and that without justice a republic can neither be governed, nor even continue to exist. When this question has been handled to the satisfaction of the company, Scipio reverts to the original thread of discourse, and repeats with commendation his own brief definition of a republic, that it is the wheel of the people. The people, he defines, as being not every assemblage or mob, but an assemblage associated by a common acknowledgment of law, and by a community of interests. Then he shows the use of definition in debate, and from these definitions of his own he gathers that a republic, or a wheel of the people, then exists only when it is well and justly governed, whether by a monarch, or an aristocracy, or by the whole people. But when the monarch is unjust, or, as the Greeks say, a tyrant, or the aristocrats are unjust, and form a faction, or the people themselves are unjust, and become, as Scipio, for want of a better name calls them, themselves the tyrant, then the republic is not only blemished, as had been proved the day before, but by legitimate deduction from those definitions, it altogether ceases to be. For it could not be the people's wheel when a tyrant factiously lorded it over the state. Neither would the people be any longer a people if it were unjust, since it would no longer answer the definition of a people, an assemblage associated by a common acknowledgment of law and by a community of interests. When, therefore, the Roman Republic was such as Sallust described it, it was not utterly wicked and profligate, as he says, but had altogether ceased to exist, if we are to admit the reasoning of that debate maintained in the subject of the Republic by its best representatives. Tully himself, too, speaking not in the person of Scipio or any one else, but uttering his own sentiments, uses the following language in the beginning of the fifth book, after quoting a line from the poet Aeneas, in which he said, Rome's severe morality and her citizens are her safeguard. This verse, says Cicero, seems to me to have all the sententious truthfulness of an oracle. For neither would the citizens have availed without the morality of the community, nor would the morality of the commons, without outstanding men, have availed either to establish, or so long to maintain in vigor so grand a republic, with so wide and just an empire. Accordingly, before our day, the hereditary usages formed our foremost men, and they on their part retained the usages and institutions of their fathers. But our age, receiving the Republic as a chef d'oeuvre of another age, which has already begun to grow old, has not merely neglected to restore the colours of the original, but has not even been at the pains to preserve so much as the general outline and most outstanding features. For what survives of that primitive morality which the poet called Rome's safeguard? It is so obsolete and forgotten, that far from practising it one does not even know it. And of the citizens, what shall I say? Morality has perished through poverty of great men, a poverty for which we must not only assign a reason, but for the guilt of which we must answer as criminals charged with a capital crime. For it is through our vices, and not by any mishap, that we retain only the name of a republic, and have long since lost the reality. This is the confession of Cicero, long indeed after the death of Africanus, whom he introduced as an interlocutor, in his work De Republica, but still before the coming of Christ. Yet if the disasters he bewails had been lamented after the Christian religion had been diffused, and had begun to prevail, is there a man of our adversaries who would not have thought they were to be imputed to the Christians? Why, then, did their gods not take steps to than to prevent the decay and extinction of that republic, over the loss of which Cicero, long before Christ had come in the flesh, sings so lugubrious a dirge. Its admirers have need to inquire whether, even in the days of primitive men and morals, true justice flourished in it. Or was it not perhaps even then, to use the casual expression of Cicero, rather a coloured painting than the living reality? 
but if God will we shall consider this elsewhere. For I mean in its own place to show that, according to the definitions in which Cicero himself, using Scipio as his mouthpiece, briefly propounded what a republic is, and what a people is, and according to many testimonies, both of his own lips, and of those who took part in that same debate, Rome never was a republic, because true justice had never a place in it. But accepting the more feasible definitions of a republic, I grant there was a republic of a certain kind, and certainly much better administered by the more ancient Romans than by their modern representatives. But the fact is, true justice has no existence save in that republic whose founder and ruler is Christ, if at least any choose to call this a republic, and indeed we cannot deny that it is the people's weal. But if perchance this name, which has become familiar in other connections, be considered alien to our common parlance, we may at all events say that in this city is true justice, the city of which holy scripture says, Glorious things are said of thee, O city of God. CHAPTER Twenty Two. But what is relevant to the present question is this, that however admirable our adversaries say the Republic was or is, it is certain that by the testimony of their own most learned writers it had become, long before the coming of Christ, utterly wicked and dissolute, and indeed had no existence, but had been destroyed by profligacy. To prevent this, surely these guardian gods ought to have given precepts of morals and a rule of life to the people, by whom they were worshipped in so many temples, with so great a variety of priests and sacrifices, with such numberless and diverse rites, so many festal solemnities, so many celebrations of magnificent games. But in all this the demons only looked after their own interest, and cared not at all how their worshippers lived, or rather were at pains to induce them to lead an abandoned life so long as they paid these tributes to their honour, and regarded them with fear. If any one denies this, let him produce, let him point to, let him read the laws which the gods had given against sedition, in which the Gracchi transgressed when they threw everything into confusion, or those Marius, and Cinna, and Carbo, broke when they involved their country in civil wars, most iniquitous and unjustifiable in their causes, cruelly conducted, and yet more cruelly terminated or those which Scylla scorned, whose life, character, and deeds, as described by Sallust and other historians, are the abhorrence of all mankind. Who will deny that at that time the Republic had become extinct? Possibly they will be bold enough to suggest in defense of the gods that they abandoned the city on account of the profligacy of the citizens, according to the lines of Virgil, Gone from each fane, each sacred shrine, are those who made this realm divine. But firstly, if it be so, then they cannot complain against the Christian religion as if it were that which gave offence to the gods and caused them to abandon Rome, since the Roman immorality had long ago driven from the altars of the city a cloud of little gods like as many flies. And yet where was this host of divinities, when long before the corruption of the primitive morality, Rome was taken and burnt by the Gauls? Perhaps they were present but asleep. For at that time the whole city fell into the hands of the enemy, with the single exception of the Capitoline Hill, and this too would have been taken had not the watchful geese aroused the sleeping gods. And this gave occasion to the festival of the goose, in which Rome sank nearly to the superstition of the Egyptians, who worshipped beasts and birds. But of these adventitious evils which are inflicted by hostile armies, or by some disaster, and which attach rather to the body than the soul, I am not meanwhile disputing. At present I speak of the decay of morality, which at first almost imperceptibly lost its brilliant hue, but afterwards was wholly obliterated, was swept away as by a torrent, and involved the Republic in such disastrous ruin, that though the houses and walls remain standing, the leading writers do not scruple to say that the Republic was destroyed. 
Now the departure of the gods from each fane, from each sacred shrine, and their abandonment of the city to destruction, was an act of justice, if their laws inculcating justice and a moral life had been held in contempt by that city. But what kind of gods were these, pray, who declined to live with the people who worshipped them, and whose corrupt life they had done nothing to reform? Chapter 23 but further, is it not obvious that the gods have abetted the fulfilment of men's desires instead of authoritatively bridling them? For Marius, a low-born and self-made man who ruthlessly provoked and conducted civil wars, was so effectually aided by them that he was seven times consul and died full of years in his seventh consulship, escaping the hands of Scylla, who immediately afterwards came into power. Why then did they not also aid him so as to restrain him from so many enormities? For if it is said that the gods had no hand in his success, this is no trivial admission that a man can attain the dearly coveted felicity of this life, even though his own gods be not propitious. That men can be loaded with the gifts of fortune as Marius was, can enjoy health, power, wealth, honors, dignity, length of days, though the gods be hostile to him. And that, on the other hand, men can be tormented as Regulus was, with captivity, bondage, destitution, watchings, pain, and cruel death, though the gods be his friends. To concede this is to make a compendious confession that the gods are useless and their worship superfluous. If the gods have taught the people rather what goes clean counter to the virtues of the soul, and that integrity of life which meets a reward after death, if even in respect of temporal and transitory blessings they neither hurt those whom they hate, nor profit whom they love, why are they worshipped? Why are they invoked with such eager homage? Why do men murmur in difficult and sad emergencies as if the gods had retired in anger, and why on their account is the Christian religion injured by the most unworthy calumnies? If in temporal matters they have power either for good or for evil, why did they stand by Marius, the worst of Rome's citizens, and abandon Regulus, the best? Does this not prove themselves to be most unjust and wicked? And even if it be supposed that for this very reason they are rather to be feared and worshipped, this is a mistake. For we do not read that Regulus worshipped them less assiduously than Marius. Neither is it apparent that a wicked life is to be chosen on the ground that the gods are supposed to have favoured Marius more than Regulus. For Metellus, the most highly esteemed of all the Romans, who had five sons in the consulship, was prosperous even in this life and Catiline, the worst of men, reduced to poverty and defeated in the war his own guilt had aroused, lived and perished miserably. Real and secure felicity is the peculiar possession of those who worship that God by whom alone it can be conferred. It is thus apparent that when the Republic was being destroyed by profligate manners, its gods did nothing to hinder its destruction by the direction or correction of its manners, but rather accelerated its destruction by increasing the demoralization and corruption that already existed. They need not pretend that their goodness was shocked by the iniquity of the city, and that they withdrew in anger. For they were there, sure enough. They are detected, convicted. They were equally unable to break silence so as to guide others, and to keep silence so as to conceal themselves. I do not dwell on the fact that the inhabitants of Materne took pity on Marius, and commended him to the goddess Marica, in her grove, that she might give him success in all things, and that from the abyss of despair in which he then lay he forthwith returned unhurt to Rome, and entered the city the ruthless leader of a ruthless army. And they who wished to know how bloody was his victory, how unlike a citizen, and how much more relentlessly than any foreign foe he acted, let them read the histories. 
But this, as I said, I do not dwell upon, nor do I attribute the bloody bliss of Marius to I know not what maternian goddess, Marica, but rather to the secret providence of God, that the mouths of our adversaries might be shut, and that they who were not led by passion, but by prudent consideration of events, might be delivered from error. And even if the demons have any power in these matters, they have only that power which the secret decree of the Almighty allots to them, in order that we may not set too great store by earthly prosperity, seeing it is oftentimes vouchsafed even to wicked men like Marius, and that we may not, on the other hand, regard it as an evil, since we see that many good and pious worshippers of the one true God are, in spite of the demons, preeminently successful. And finally, that we may not suppose that these unclean spirits are either to be propitiated or feared for the sake of earthly blessings or calamities. For as wicked men on earth cannot do all they would, so neither can these demons, but only in so far as they are permitted by the decree of him whose judgments are fully comprehensible, justly reprehensible by none. CHAPTER Twenty Four. It is certain that Scylla, whose rule was so cruel, that in comparison with it the preceding state of things which he came to avenge was regretted, when first he advanced toward Rome to give battle to Marius, found the auspices so favorable when he sacrificed, that according to Livy's account, the augur Postumius expressed his willingness to lose his head if Scylla did not, with the help of the gods, accomplish what he designed. The gods, you see, had not departed from every fane and sacred shrine, since they were still predicting the issue of these affairs and yet were taking no steps to correct Scylla himself. Their presages promised him great prosperity, but no threatenings of theirs subdued his evil passions. And then, when he was in Asia conducting the war against Mithridates, a message from Jupiter was delivered to him by Lucius Titius, to the effect that he would conquer Mithridates, and so it came to pass. And afterwards, when he was meditating a return to Rome for the purpose of avenging in the blood of the citizens injuries done to himself and his friends, a second message from Jupiter was delivered to him by a soldier of the Sixth Legion, to the effect that it was he who had predicted the victory over Mithridates, and that he now promised to give him power to recover the Republic from his enemies, though with great bloodshed. Scylla at once inquired of the soldier what form had appeared to him, and on his reply recognized that it was the same as Jupiter had formerly employed, to convey to him the assurance regarding the victory over Mithridates. How then can the gods be justified in this matter for the care they took to predict these shadowy successes, and for their negligence in correcting Scylla, and restraining him from stirring up a civil war so lamentable and atrocious, that it not merely disfigured but extinguished the Republic? The truth is, as I have often said, and as scripture informs us, and as the facts themselves sufficiently indicate, the demons are found to look after their own ends only, that they may be regarded and worshipped as gods, and that men may be induced to offer to them a worship which associates them with their crimes, and involves them in one common wickedness and judgment of God. Afterwards, when Scylla had come to Tarentum, and had sacrificed there, he saw on the head of the victim's liver the likeness of a golden crown. Thereupon the same soothsayer Posthumius interpreted this to signify a signal victory, and ordered that he only should eat of the entrails. A little afterwards the slave of a certain Lucius Pontius cried out, I am Bologna's messenger, the victory is yours, Scylla. Then he added that the capital should be burned. As soon as he had uttered this prediction he left the camp, but returned the following day more excited than ever, and shouted, The capital is fired! And fired indeed it was. This it was easy for a demon both to foresee and quickly to announce. 
but observe as relevant to our subject what kind of gods they are under whom these men desire to live who blaspheme the saviour that delivers the wills of the faithful from the dominion of devils the man cried out in prophetic rapture the victory is yours Scylla and to certify that he spoke by a divine spirit, he predicted also an event which was shortly to happen, and which indeed did fall out, in a place from which he in whom this spirit was speaking was far distant. But he never cried, Forbear thy villainies, Scylla, the villainies which were committed at Rome by that victor, to whom a golden crown on the calf's liver had been shown as the divine evidence of his victory. If such signs as this were customarily sent by just gods, and not by wicked demons, then certainly the entrails he consulted should rather have given Scylla intimation of the cruel disasters that were to befall the city and himself. For that victory was not so conducive to his exaltation to power, as it was fatal to his ambition. For by it he became so insatiable in his desires, and was rendered so arrogant and reckless by prosperity, that he may be said rather to have inflicted a moral destruction on himself than corporal destruction on his enemies. But these truly woeful and deplorable calamities the gods gave him no previous hint of, neither by entrails, augury, dream, nor prediction. For they feared his amendment more than his defeat. Yea, they took good care that this glorious conqueror of his own fellow-citizens should be conquered and led captive by his own infamous vices, and should thus be the more submissive slave of the demons themselves. CHAPTER Twenty Five. Now who does not hereby comprehend, unless he is preferred to imitate such gods rather than by divine grace to withdraw himself from their fellowship, who does not see how eagerly these evil spirits strive by their example to lend, as it were, divine authority to crime? Is not this proved by the fact that they were seen in a wide plain in Campania, rehearsing among themselves the battle which shortly after took place there with great bloodshed between the armies of Rome? For at first there were heard loud crashing noises, and afterwards many reported that they had seen for some days together two armies engaged. And when this battle ceased, they found the ground all indented with just such footprints of men and horses as a great conflict would leave. If, then, the deities were veritably fighting with one another, the civil wars of men are sufficiently justified. Yet, by the way, let it be observed that such pugnacious gods must be very wicked or very wretched. If, however, it was but a sham fight, what did they intend by this, but that the civil wars of the Romans should seem no wickedness, but an imitation of the gods? For already the civil wars had begun, and before this some lamentable battles and execrable massacres had occurred. Already many had been moved by the story of the soldier, who, on stripping the spoils of his slain foe, recognized in the stripped corpse his own brother, and with deep curses on civil wars slew himself there and then on his brother's body. To disguise the bitterness of such tragedies, and kindle increasing ardor in this monstrous warfare, these malign demons, who were reputed and worshipped as gods, fell upon this plan of revealing themselves in a state of civil war, that no compunction for fellow-citizens might cause the Romans to shrink from such battles, but that the human criminality might be justified by the divine example. By a like craft, too, did these evil spirits command that scenic entertainments, of which I have already spoken, should be instituted and dedicated to them and in these entertainments the poetical compositions and actions of the drama ascribed such iniquities to the gods, that every one might safely imitate them, whether he believed the gods had actually done such things, or, not believing this, yet perceived that they most eagerly desired to be represented as having done them. 
and that no one might suppose that in representing the gods as fighting with one another the poets had slandered them and imputed to them unworthy actions the gods themselves to complete the deception confirmed the compositions of the poets by exhibiting their own battles to the eyes of men not only through actions in the theatres but in their own persons on the actual field we have been forced to bring forward these facts because their authors have not scrupled to say and to write that the Roman Republic had already been ruined by the depraved moral habits of the citizens, and had ceased to exist before the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this ruin they do not impute to their own gods, though they impute to our Christ the evils of this life, which cannot ruin good men, be they alive or dead. And this they do, though our Christ has issued so many precepts inculcating virtue and restraining vice, while their own gods have done nothing whatever to preserve that republic that served them, and to restrain it from ruin by such precepts, but have rather hastened its destruction by corrupting its morality through their pestilent example. No one, I fancy, will now be bold enough to say that the republic was then ruined because of the departure of the gods, from each fane, each sacred shrine, as if they were the friends of virtue and were offended by the vices of men. No, there are too many presages from entrails, auguries, soothsayings, whereby they boastingly proclaim themselves prescient of future events and controllers of the fortune of war, all which proved them to have been present. And had they been indeed absent, the Romans would never in these civil wars have been so far transported by their own passions as they were by the instigation of these gods. CHAPTER Twenty Six. Seeing that this is so, seeing that the filthy and cruel deeds, the disgraceful and criminal actions of the gods, whether real or feigned, were at their own request published, and were consecrated and dedicated in their honour as sacred and stated solemnities, seeing they vowed vengeance on those who refused to exhibit them to the eyes of all, that they might be proposed as deeds worthy of imitation, why is it that these same demons, who by taking pleasure in such obscenities, acknowledge themselves to be unclean spirits, and by delighting in their own villainies and iniquities, real or imaginary, and by requesting from the immodest and extorting from the modest, the celebration of these licentious acts, proclaim themselves instigators to a criminal and lewd life? Why, I ask, are they represented as giving some good moral precepts to a few of their own elect, initiated in the secrecy of their shrines? If it be so, this very thing only serves further to demonstrate the malicious craft of these pestilent spirits. For so great is the influence of probity and chastity that all men, or almost all men, are moved by the praise of these virtues. Nor is any man so depraved by vice, but he hath some feeling of honour left in him so that, unless the devil sometimes transformed himself, as Scripture says, into an angel of light, he could not compass his deceitful purpose. Accordingly, in public, a bold impurity fills the ear of the people with noisy clamour. In private, a feigned chastity speaks in scarce audible whispers to a few. An open stage is provided for shameful things, but on the praiseworthy the curtain falls. Grace hides, disgrace flaunts. A wicked deed draws an overflowing house, a virtuous speech, finds scarce a hearer, as though purity were to be blushed at, impurity boasted of. Where else can such confusion reign but in devil's temples? Where but in the haunts of deceit? For the secret precepts are given as a sop to the virtuous, who are few in number. The wicked examples are exhibited to encourage the vicious, who are countless. Where and when those initiated in the mysteries of Celestis received any good instructions, we know not. 
What we do know is that before her shrine in which her image is set, and amidst a vast crowd gathering from all quarters, and standing closely packed together, we were intensely interested spectators of the games which were going on, and saw, as we pleased to turn the eye, on this side a grand display of harlots, on the other the virgin goddess. We saw this virgin worshipped with prayer, and with obscene rites. There we saw no shamefaced mimes, no actress overburdened with modesty. All that the obscene rites demanded was fully complied with. We were plainly shown what was pleasing to the virgin deity, and the matron who witnessed the spectacle returned home from the temple a wiser woman. Some indeed of the more prudent women turned their faces from the immodest movements of the players, and learned the art of wickedness by a furtive regard. For they were restrained by the modest demeanour due to men from looking boldly at the immodest gestures, but much more were they restrained from condemning with chaste heart the sacred rites of her whom they adored. And yet this licentiousness, which if practised in one's home could only be done there in secret, was practised as a public lesson in the temple, and if any modesty remained in man it was occupied in marvelling that wickedness which men could not unrestrainedly commit should be part of the religious teaching of the gods, and that to omit its exhibition should incur the anger of the gods. What spirit can that be which by a hidden inspiration stirs men's corruption, and goads them to adultery, and feeds on the full-fledged iniquity, unless it be the same that finds pleasure in such religious ceremonies, sets in the temples images of devils, and loves to see and play the images of vices, that whispers in secret some righteous sayings to deceive the few who are good, and scatters in public invitations to profligacy to gain possession of the millions who are wicked? Chapter twenty seven Cicero, a weighty man and a philosopher in his way, when about to be made aedile, wished the citizens to understand that among the other duties of his magistracy he must propitiate Flora by the celebration of games, and these games are reckoned devout in proportion to their lewdness. In another place, and when he was now consul, in the state in great peril, he says that games had been celebrated for ten days together, and that nothing had been omitted which could pacify the gods, as if it had not been more satisfactory to irritate the gods by temperance than to pacify them by debauchery, and to provoke their hate by honest living than soothe it by such unseemly grossness. For no matter how cruel was the ferocity of those men who were threatening the state, and on whose account the gods were being propitiated, it could not have been more hurtful than the alliance of gods who were one with the foulest vices. To avert the danger which threatened men's bodies, the gods were conciliated in a fashion that drove virtue from their spirits. And the gods did not enroll themselves as defenders of the battlements against the besiegers, until they had first stormed and sacked the morality of the citizens. This propitiation of such divinities, a propitiation so wanton, so impure, so immodest, so wicked, so filthy, whose actors the innate and praiseworthy virtue of the Romans disabled from civic honours, erased from their tribe, recognised as polluted and made infamous, this propitiation, I say, so foul, so detestable, and alien from every religious feeling, these fabulous and ensnaring accounts of the criminal actions of the gods, these scandalous actions which they either shamefully and wickedly committed, or more shamefully and wickedly feigned, all this the whole city learned in public both by the words and gestures of the actors. They saw that the gods delighted in the commission of these things, and therefore believed that they wished them not only to be exhibited to them, but to be imitated by themselves. But as for that good and honest instruction which they speak of, it was given in such secrecy, and to so few, if indeed given at all, that they seemed rather to fear it might be divulged, than that it might not be practised. CHAPTER Twenty Eight. 
They, then, are but abandoned and ungrateful wretches in deep and fast bondage to that malign spirit, who complain and murmur that men are rescued by the name of Christ from the hellish thraldom of these unclean spirits, and from a participation in their punishment, and are brought out of the night of pestilential ungodliness into the light of most healthful piety. Only such men could murmur that the masses flocked to the churches and their chaste acts of worship, where a seemly separation of the sexes is observed, where they learn how they may so spend this earthly life as to merit a blessed eternity hereafter, where holy scripture and instruction in righteousness are proclaimed from a raised platform in presence of all, that both they who do the word may hear to their salvation, and they who do it not may hear to judgment." And though some enter who scoff at such precepts, all their petulance is either quenched by a sudden change, or is restrained through fear or shame. For no filthy and wicked action is there set forth to be gazed at or to be imitated, but either the precepts of the true God are recommended, his miracles narrated, his gifts praised, or his benefits implored. CHAPTER Twenty Nine. This, rather, is the religion worthy of your desires, O admirable Roman race, the progeny of your Shavolas and Scipios, of Regulus and of Fabricius. This rather covet, this distinguish from that foul vanity and crafty malice of the devils. If there is in your nature any eminent virtue, only by true piety is it purged and perfected, while by impiety it is wrecked and punished. Choose now what you will pursue, that your praise may be not in yourself, but in the true God, in whom is no error. For of popular glory you have had your share, but by the secret providence of God the true religion was not offered to your choice. Awake, it is now day, as you have already awaked in the persons of some in whose perfect virtue and sufferings for the true faith we glory. For they, contending on all sides with hostile powers, and conquering them all by bravely dying, have purchased for us this country of ours with their blood, to which country we invite you, and exhort you to add yourselves to the number of the citizens of this city, which also has a sanctuary of its own in the true remission of sins. Do not listen to those degenerate sons of thine who slander Christ and Christians, and impute to them these disastrous times, though they desire times in which they may enjoy rather impunity for their wickedness than a peaceful life. Such has never been Rome's ambition even in regard to her earthly country. Lay hold now on the celestial country, which is easily won, and in which you will reign truly and for ever. For there shalt thou find no vestal fire, no capitoline stone, but the one true God. No date, no goal, will here ordain, but grant an endless, boundless reign. No longer, then, follow after false and deceitful gods. Abjure them, rather, and despise them, bursting forth into true liberty. Gods they are not, but malignant spirits, to whom your eternal happiness will be a sore punishment. Juno, for whom you deduce your origin according to the flesh, did not so bitterly grudge Rome's citadels to the Trojans, as these devils, whom yet ye repute gods, grudge an everlasting seat to the race of mankind. And thou thyself hast in no wavering voice passed judgment on them, when thou didst pacify them with games, and yet didst account as infamous the men by whom the plays were acted. Suffer us then to assert thy freedom against the unclean spirits who had imposed on thy neck the yoke of celebrating their own shame and filthiness. The actors of these divine crimes thou hast removed from offices of honour. Supplicate the true God, that he may remove from thee those gods who delight in their crimes, a most disgraceful thing if the crimes are really theirs, and a most malicious invention if the crimes are feigned. 
well done in that thou hast spontaneously banished from the number of your citizens all actors and players awake more fully the majesty of god cannot be propitiated by that which defiles the dignity of man how then can you believe that gods who take pleasure in such lewd plays belong to the number of the holy powers of heaven when the men by whom these plays are acted are by yourselves refused admission into the number of roman citizens even of the lowest grade incomparably more glorious than rome is that heavenly city in which for victory you have truth for dignity holiness for peace felicity for life eternity much less does it admit into its society such gods if thou dost blush to admit into thine such men wherefore if thou wouldst attain to the blessed city shun the society of devils they who are propitiated by deeds of shame are unworthy of the worship of right-hearted men let these then be obliterated from your worship by the cleansing of the christian religion as those men were blotted from your citizenship by the censor's mark but so far as regards carnal benefits which are the only blessings the wicked desire to enjoy and carnal miseries which alone they shrink from enduring we will show in the following book that the demons have not the power they are supposed to have and although they had it we ought rather on that account to despise these blessings than for the sake of them to worship those gods and by worshipping them to miss the attainment of these blessings they grudge us but that they have not even this power which is ascribed to them by those who worship them for the sake of temporal advantages this i say i will prove in the following book so let us here close the present argument end of book two chapters eighteen through twenty nine recording by darren l slider fort worth texas www.logoslibrary.org Book three, chapters one through sixteen of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo. Book three, chapter one of moral and spiritual evils which are above all others to be deprecated i think enough has already been said to show that the false gods took no steps to prevent the people who worshipped them from being overwhelmed by such calamities but rather aggravated the ruin i see i must now speak of those evils which alone are dreaded by the heathen famine pestilence war pillage captivity massacre and the like calamities already enumerated in the first book for evil men account those things alone evil which do not make men evil neither do they blush to praise good things and yet to remain evil among the good things they praise it grieves them more to own a bad house than a bad life as if it were man's greatest good to have everything good but himself but not even such evils as were alone dreaded by the heathen were warded off by their gods even when they were most unrestrictedly worshipped for in various times and places before the advent of our Redeemer, the human race was crushed with numberless and sometimes incredible calamities, and at that time what gods but those did the world worship, if you accept the one nation of the Hebrews, and beyond them such individuals as the most secret and most just judgment of God counted worthy of divine grace? 
but that I may not be prolix, I will be silent regarding the heavy calamities that have been suffered by any other nations, and will speak only of what happened to Rome and the Roman Empire, by which I mean Rome properly so called, and those lands which already, before the coming of Christ, had by alliance or conquest become, as it were, members of the body of the state. CHAPTER Two. First, then, why was Troy or Ilium the cradle of the Roman people, for I must not overlook nor disguise what I touched upon in the first book, conquered, taken, and destroyed by the Greeks, though it esteemed and worshipped the same gods as they? Priam, some answer, paid the penalty of the perjury of his father Laomedon. Then it is true that Laomedon hired Apollo and Neptune as his workmen, for the story goes that he promised them wages and then broke his bargain. I wonder that famous diviner Apollo toiled at so huge a work, and never suspected Laomedon was going to cheat him of his pay. And Neptune, too, his uncle, brother of Jupiter, king of the sea, it really was not seemly that he should be ignorant of what was to happen. For he is introduced by Homer, who lived and wrote before the building of Rome, as predicting something great of the posterity of Aeneas, who in fact founded Rome. And as Homer says, Neptune also rescued Aeneas in a cloud from the wrath of Achilles, though, according to Virgil, all his will was to destroy his own creation, perjured Troy. Gods then so great as Apollo and Neptune, in ignorance of the cheat that was to defraud them of their wages, built the walls of Troy for nothing but thanks and thankless people. There may be some doubt whether it is not a worse crime to believe such persons to be gods than to cheat such gods. Even Homer himself did not give full credence to the story, for while he represents Neptune indeed as hostile to the Trojans, he introduces Apollo as their champion, though the story implies that both were offended by that fraud. If therefore they believe their fables, let them blush to worship such gods. If they discredit the fables, let no more be said of the Trojan perjury, or let them explain how the gods hated Trojan, but loved Roman perjury. For how did the conspiracy of Catalan, even in so large and corrupt a city, find so abundant a supply of men whose hands and tongues found them a living by perjury and civic broils? What else but perjury corrupted the judgments pronounced by so many of the senators? What else corrupted the people's votes and decisions of all causes tried before them? For it seems that the ancient practice of taking oaths has been preserved even in the midst of the greatest corruption, not for the sake of restraining wickedness by religious fear, but to complete the tale of crimes by adding that of perjury. CHAPTER three. There is no ground, then, for representing the gods, by whom, as they say, that empire stood, though they are proved to have been conquered by the Greeks, as being enraged at the Trojan perjury. Neither, as others again plead in their defence, was it indignation at the adultery of Paris that caused them to withdraw their protection from Troy. For their habit is to be instigators and instructors in vice, not its avengers. The city of Rome, says Sallust, was first built and inhabited, as I have heard, by the Trojans, who, flying their country under the conduct of Aeneas, wandered about without making any settlement. If, then, the gods were of opinion that the adultery of Paris should be punished, it was chiefly the Romans, or at least the Romans also, who should have suffered, for the adultery was brought about by Aeneas's mother. But how could they hate in Paris a crime which they made no objection to in their own sister Venus, who, not to mention any other instance, committed adultery with Anchises, and so became the mother of Aeneas? Is it because in the one case Menelaus was aggrieved, while in the other Vulcan connived at the crime? For the gods, I fancy, are so little jealous of their wives that they make no scruple of sharing them with men. But perhaps I may be suspected of turning the myths into ridicule, and not handling so weighty a subject with sufficient gravity. 
Well, then, let us say that Aeneas is not the son of Venus. I am willing to admit it. But is Romulus any more the son of Mars? For why not the one as well as the other? Or is it lawful for gods to have intercourse with women, unlawful for men to have intercourse with goddesses? A hard, or rather an incredible condition, that what was allowed to Mars by the law of Venus should not be allowed to Venus herself by her own law. However, both cases have the authority of Rome, for Caesar in modern times believed no less that he was descended from Venus than the ancient Romulus believed himself the son of Mars. CHAPTER Four. Some one will say, But do you believe all this? Not I, indeed. For even Varro, a very learned heathen, all but admits that these stories are false, though he does not boldly and confidently say so. But he maintains it is useful for states that brave men believe, though falsely, that they are descended from the gods, for that thus the human spirit, cherishing the belief of its divine descent, will both more boldly venture into great enterprises, and will carry them out more energetically, and will therefore by its very confidence secure more abundant success. You see how wide a field is open to falsehood by this opinion of Varro's, which I have expressed as well as I could in my own words, and how comprehensible it is that many of the religions and sacred legends should be feigned in a community in which it was judged profitable for the citizens that lies should be told even about the gods themselves. CHAPTER five. But whether Venus could bear Aeneas to a human father Anchises, or Mars beget Romulus of the daughter of Numitor, we leave as unsettled questions. For our own scriptures suggest the very similar question, whether the fallen angels had sexual intercourse with the daughters of men, by which the earth was at that time filled with giants, that is, with enormously large and strong men. At present, then, I will limit my discussion to this dilemma. If that which their books relate about the mother of Aeneas and the father of Romulus be true, how can the gods be displeased with men for adulteries, which, when committed by themselves, excite no displeasure? If it is false, not even in this case can the gods be angry that men should really commit adulteries, which, even when falsely attributed to the gods, they delight in. Moreover, if the adultery of Mars be discredited, that Venus also may be freed from the imputation, then the mother of Romulus is left unshielded by the pretext of a divine seduction. For Sylvia was a vestal priestess, and the gods ought to avenge this sacrilege on the Romans with greater severity than Paris's adultery in the Trojans. For even the Romans themselves in primitive times used to go so far as to bury alive any vestal who was detected in adultery, while women unconsecrated, though they were punished, were never punished with death for that crime, and thus they more earnestly vindicated the purity of shrines they esteemed divine than of the human bed. CHAPTER six. I add another instance. If the sins of men so greatly incensed those divinities, that they abandoned Troy to fire and sword to punish the crime of Paris, the murder of Romulus's brother ought to have incensed them more against the Romans than the cajoling of a Greek husband moved them against the Trojans. Fratricide in a newly-born city should have provoked them more than adultery in a city already flourishing. It makes no difference to the question we now discuss, whether Romulus ordered his brother to be slain, or slew him with his own hand. It is a crime which many shamelessly deny, many through shame doubt, many in grief disguise. And we shall not pause to examine and weigh the testimonies of historical writers on the subject. All agree that the brother of Romulus was slain, not by enemies, not by strangers. If it was Romulus who either commanded or perpetrated this crime, Romulus was more truly the head of the Romans than Paris of the Trojans, why then did he who carried off another man's wife bring down the anger of the gods and the Trojans, while he who took his brother's life obtained the guardianship of those same gods? 
If, on the other hand, that crime was not wrought either by the hand or will of Romulus, then the whole city is chargeable with it, because it did not see to its punishment, and thus committed not fratricide but parricide, which is worse. For both brothers were the founders of that city, of which the one was by villainy prevented from being a ruler. So far as I see, then, no evil can be ascribed to Troy which warranted the gods in abandoning it to destruction, nor any good to Rome which accounts for the gods visiting it with prosperity, unless the truth be that they fled from Troy because they were vanquished, and betook themselves to Rome to practice their characteristic deceptions there. Nevertheless they kept a footing for themselves in Troy, that they might deceive future inhabitants who repeopled these lands, while at Rome, by a wider exercise of their malignant arts, they exulted in more abundant honours. Chapter 7. And surely we may ask what wrong poor Ilium had done, that in the first heat of the civil wars of Rome it should suffer at the hand of Fimbria, the veriest villain among Marius's partisans, a more fierce and cruel destruction than the Grecian sack. For when the Greeks took it many escaped, and many who did not escape were suffered to live, though in captivity. But Fimbria from the first gave orders that not a life should be spared, and burnt up together the city and all its inhabitants. Thus was Ilium requited, not by the Greeks, whom she had provoked by wrong-doing, but by the Romans, who had been built out of her ruins, while the gods, adored alike of both sides, did simply nothing, or, to speak more correctly, could do nothing. Is it then true that at this time also, after Troy had repaired the damage done by the Grecian fire, all the gods by whose help the kingdom stood, forsook each fane, each sacred shrine? But if so, I ask the reason, for in my judgment the conduct of the gods was as much to be reprobated as that of the townsmen to be applauded. For these closed their gates against Fimbria, that they might preserve the city for Scylla, and were therefore burnt and consumed by the enraged general. Now up to this time Scylla's cause was the more worthy of the two, for till now he used arms to restore the republic, and as yet his good intentions had met with no reverses. What better thing, then, could the Trojans have done? What more honourable, what more faithful to Rome, or more worthy of her relationship, than to preserve their city for the better part of the Romans, and to shut their gates against a parricide of his country? It is for the defenders of the gods to consider the ruin which this conduct brought on Troy. The gods deserted an adulterous people, and abandoned Troy to the fires of the Greeks, that out of her ashes a chaster Rome might arise. But why did they a second time abandon this same town, allied now to Rome, and not making war upon her noble daughter, but preserving a most steadfast and pious fidelity to Rome's most justifiable faction? Why did they give her up to be destroyed, not by the Greek heroes, but by the basest of the Romans? Or if the gods did not favour Scylla's cause, for which the unhappy Trojans maintained their city, why did they themselves predict and promise Scylla such successes? Must we call them flatterers of the fortunate, rather than helpers of the wretched? Troy was not destroyed, then, because the gods deserted it, for the demons, always watchful to deceive, did what they could. For when all the statues were overthrown and burnt together with the town, Livy tells us that only the image of Minerva is said to have been found standing uninjured amidst the ruins of her temple, not that it might be said in their praise, the gods who made this realm divine, but that it might not be said in their defence, they are gone from each fane, each sacred shrine. For that marvel was permitted to them, not that they might be proved to be powerful, but that they might be convicted of being present. CHAPTER Eight. Where, then, was the wisdom of entrusting Rome to the Trojan gods who had demonstrated their weakness and the loss of Troy? Will someone say that when Fimbria stormed Troy the gods were already resident in Rome? How, then, did the image of Minerva remain standing? 
Besides, if they were at Rome when Fimbria destroyed Troy, perhaps they were at Troy when Rome itself was taken and set on fire by the Gauls. But as they are very acute in hearing, and very swift in their movements, they came quickly at the cackling of the goose, to defend at least the capital, though to defend the rest of the city they were too long in being warned. CHAPTER Nine. It is also believed that it was by the help of the gods that the successor of Romulus, Numa Pompilius, enjoyed peace during his entire reign, and shut the gates of Janus, which are customarily kept open during war. And it is supposed he was thus requited for appointing many religious observances among the Romans. Certainly that king would have commanded our congratulations for so rare a leisure, had he been wise enough to spend it on wholesome pursuits, and, subduing a pernicious curiosity, had sought out the true god with true piety. But, as it was, the gods were not the authors of his leisure, but possibly they would have deceived him less had they found him busier. For the more disengaged they found him, the more they themselves occupied his attention. Varro informs us of all his efforts, and of the arts he employed to associate these gods with himself and the city, and in its own place, if God will, I shall discuss these matters. Meanwhile, as we are speaking of the benefits conferred by the gods, I readily admit that peace is a great benefit but it is a benefit of the true God, which, like the sun, the rain, and other supports of life, is frequently conferred on the ungrateful and wicked. But if this great boon was conferred on Rome and Pompilius by their gods, why did they never afterwards grant it to the Roman Empire during even more meritorious periods? Were the sacred rites more efficient at their first institution than during their subsequent celebration? But they had no existence in Numa's time, until he added them to the ritual, whereas afterwards they had already been celebrated and preserved, that benefit might arise from them. How then is it that those forty-three, or as others prefer it, thirty-nine years of Numa's reign, were passed in unbroken peace, and yet that afterwards, when the worship was established, and the gods themselves who were invoked by it, were the recognized guardians and patrons of the city, we can with difficulty find during the whole period, from the building of the city to the reign of Augustus, one year, that which followed the close of the first Punic War, in which, for a marvel, the Romans were able to shut the gates of war. CHAPTER Ten. Do they reply that the Roman Empire could never have been so widely extended, nor so glorious, save by constant and unintermitting wars? A fit argument, truly. Why must a kingdom be distracted in order to be great? In this little world of man's body is it not better to have a moderate stature, and health with it, than to attain the huge dimensions of a giant by unnatural torments, and when you attain to it to find no rest, but to be pained the more in proportion to the size of your members?' What evil would have resulted, or rather what good would not have resulted, had those times continued which Sallust sketched, when he says, At first the kings, for that was the first title of empire in the world, were divided in their sentiments, part cultivated the mind, others the body. At that time the life of man was led without covetousness, every one was sufficiently satisfied with his own. Was it requisite, then, for Rome's prosperity, that the state of things which Virgil reprobates should succeed? At length stole on a baser age, and war's indomitable rage, in greedy lust of gain. But obviously the Romans have a plausible defence for undertaking and carrying on such disastrous wars, to wit, that the pressure of their enemies forced them to resist, so that they were compelled to fight, not by any greed of human applause, but by the necessity of protecting life and liberty. Well, let that pass. Here is Sallust's account of the matter. For when their state, enriched with laws, institutions, territory, seemed abundantly prosperous and sufficiently powerful, according to the ordinary law of human nature, opulence gave birth to envy. 
Accordingly, the neighboring kings and states took arms and assaulted them. A few allies lent assistance. The rest, struck with fear, kept aloof from dangers. But the Romans, watchful at home and in war, were active, made preparations, encouraged one another, marched to meet their enemies, protected by arms their liberty, country, parents. Afterwards, when they had repelled the dangers by their bravery, they carried help to their allies and friends, and procured alliances more by conferring than by receiving favors. This was to build up Rome's greatness by honorable means. But in Numa's reign, I would know whether the long peace was maintained in spite of the incursions of wicked neighbors, or if these incursions were discontinued that the peace might be maintained. For if even then Rome was harassed by wars, and yet did not meet force with force, the same means she then used to quiet her enemies without conquering them in war, or terrifying them with the onset of battle, she might have used always, and have reigned in peace, with the gates of Janus shut. And if this was not in her power, then Rome enjoyed peace not at the will of her gods, but at the will of her neighbors round about, and only so long as they care to provoke her with no war, unless perhaps these pitiful gods will dare to sell to one man as their favor what lies not in their power to bestow, but in the will of another man. These demons, indeed, in so far as they are permitted, can terrify or incite the minds of wicked men by their own peculiar wickedness. But if they always had this power, and if no action were taken against their efforts by a more secret and higher power, they would be supreme to give peace, or the victories of war, which almost always fall out through some human emotion, and frequently in opposition to the will of the gods, as is proved not only by lying legends, which scarcely hint or signify any grain of truth, but even by Roman history itself. CHAPTER eleven. And it is still this weakness of the gods which is confessed in the story of the Cuman Apollo, who is said to have wept for four days during the war with the Achaeans and King Aristonicus. And when the augurs were alarmed at the portent, and had determined to cast the statue into the sea, the old men of Cumae interposed, and related that a similar prodigy had occurred to the same image during the wars against Antiochus and against Perseus, and that by a decree of the Senate gifts had been presented to Apollo, because the event had proved favorable to the Romans. Then soothsayers were summoned, who were supposed to have greater professional skill, and they pronounced that the weeping of Apollo's image was propitious to the Romans, because Cumae was a Greek colony, and that Apollo was bewailing, and thereby presaging, the grief and calamity that was about to light upon his own land of Greece, from which he had been brought. Shortly afterwards it was reported that King Aristonicus was defeated and made prisoner, a defeat certainly opposed to the will of Apollo, and this he indicated by even shedding tears from his marble image. And this shows us that, though the verses of the poets are mythical, they are not altogether devoid of truth, but describe the manners of the demons in a sufficiently fit style. For in Virgil Diana mourned for Camilla, and Hercules wept for Pallas doomed to die. This is perhaps the reason why Numa Pompilius, too, when enjoying prolonged peace, but without knowing or inquiring from whom he received it, he began in his leisure to consider to what gods he should entrust the safe-keeping and conduct of Rome, and not dreaming that the true, almighty, and most high God cares for earthly affairs, but recollecting only that the Trojan gods which Aeneas had brought to Italy had been able to preserve neither the Trojan nor Lavinian kingdom founded by Aeneas himself, concluded that he must provide other gods as guardians of fugitives and helpers of the weak, and add them to those earlier divinities who had either come over to Rome with Romulus, or when Alba was destroyed. CHAPTER Twelve. But though Pompilius introduced so ample a ritual, yet did not Rome see fit to be content with it. For as yet Jupiter himself had not his chief temple, it being King Tarquin who built the capital. 
and Esculapius left Epidaurus for Rome, that in this foremost city he might have a finer field for the exercise of his great medical skill. The mother of the gods, too, came I know not whence from Pacinans, it being unseemly that, while her son presided on the Capitoline hill, she herself should lie hid in obscurity. But if she is the mother of all the gods, she not only followed some of her children to Rome, but left others to follow her. I wonder indeed if she were the mother of, of Cynocephalus, who a long while afterwards came from Egypt. Whether also the goddess Fever was her offspring is a matter for her grandson Esculapius to decide. But of whatever breed she be, the foreign gods will not presume, I trust, to call the goddess Baseborn, who is a Roman citizen. Who can number the deities to whom the guardianship of Rome was entrusted? indigenous and imported both of heaven earth hell seas fountains rivers and as varro says gods certain and uncertain male and female for as among animals so among all kinds of gods there are these distinctions rome then enjoying the protection of such a cloud of deities might surely have been preserved from some of those great and horrible calamities of which i can mention but a few for by this great smoke of her altars she summoned to her protection as by a beacon-fire a host of gods for whom she appointed and maintained temples altars sacrifices priests and thus offended the true and most high god to whom alone all this ceremonial is lawfully due and indeed she was more prosperous when she had fewer gods but the greater she became the more gods she thought she should have as the larger ship needs to be manned by a larger crew I suppose she despaired of the smaller number, under whose protection she had spent comparatively happy days, being able to defend her greatness. For even under the kings, with the exception of Numa Pompilius, of whom I have already spoken, how wicked a contentiousness must have existed to occasion the death of Romulus's brother! CHAPTER Thirteen. How is it that neither Juno, who with her husband Jupiter, even then cherished Rome's sons, the nation of the gown, nor Venus herself could assist the children of the loved Aeneas to find wives by some right and equitable means. For the lack of this entailed upon the Romans the lamentable necessity of stealing their wives, and then waging war with their fathers-in-law, so that the wretched women, before they had recovered from the wrong done them by their husbands, were dowried with the blood of their fathers. But the Romans conquered their neighbors. Yes, but with what wounds on both sides, and with what sad slaughter of relatives and neighbors! The war of Caesar and Pompey was the contest of only one father-in-law with one son-in-law, and before it began the daughter of Caesar, Pompey's wife, was already dead. But with how keen and just an accent of grief does Lucan exclaim, I sing that worse than civil war waged in the plains of Amathia, and in which the crime was justified by the victory. The Romans, then, conquered that they might, with hands stained in the blood of their fathers-in-law, wrench the miserable girls from their embrace, girls who dared not weep for their slain parents for fear of offending their victorious husbands, and while yet the battle was raging stood with their prayers on their lips, and knew not for whom to utter them. Such nuptials were certainly prepared for the Roman people not by Venus, but Bellona, or possibly that infernal fury Electo had more liberty to injure them, now that Juno was aiding them, than when the prayers of that goddess had excited her against Aeneas. Andromache in captivity was happier than these Roman brides. For though she was a slave, yet after she had become the wife of Pyrrhus, no more Trojans fell by his hand. But the Romans slew in battle the very fathers of the brides they fondled. Andromache, the victor's captive, could only mourn, not fear the death of her people. 
The Sabine women, related to men still combatants, feared the death of their fathers when their husbands went out to battle, and mourned their death as they returned, while neither their grief nor their fear could be freely expressed. For the victories of their husbands, involving the destruction of fellow townsmen, relatives, brothers, fathers, caused either pious agony or cruel exultation. Moreover, as the fortune of war is capricious, some of them lost their husbands by the sword of their parents, while others lost husband and father together in mutual destruction. For the Romans by no means escaped with impunity, but they were driven back within their walls, and defended themselves behind closed gates, and when the gates were opened by guile, and the enemy admitted into the town, the forum itself was the field of a hateful and fierce engagement of fathers-in-law and sons-in-law. The ravishers were indeed quite defeated, and flying on all sides to their houses, sullied with new shame their original shameful and lamentable triumph. It was at this juncture that Romulus, hoping no more from the valour of his citizens, prayed Jupiter that they might stand their ground, and from this occasion the god gained the name of Stator. But not even thus would the mischief have been finished, had not the ravished women themselves flashed out with dishevelled hair, and cast themselves before their parents, and thus disarmed their just rage, not with the arms of victory, but with the supplications of filial affection. Then Romulus, who could not brook his own brother as a colleague, was compelled to accept Titus Tatius, king of the Sabines, as his partner in the throne. But how long would he who misliked the fellowship of his own twin brother endure a stranger? So, Tatius being slain, Romulus remained sole king that he might be the greater god. See what rites of marriage these were that fomented unnatural wars. These were the Roman leagues of kindred, relationship, alliance, religion. This was the life of the city so abundantly protected by the gods. You see how many severe things might be said on this theme, but our purpose carries us past them, and requires our discourse for other matters. CHAPTER fourteen. But what happened after Numa's reign, and under the other kings, when the Albans were provoked into war, with sad results not to themselves alone, but also to the Romans? The long peace of Numa had become tedious, and with what endless slaughter and detriment of both states did the Roman and Alban armies bring it to an end? For Alba, which had been founded by Ascanius, son of Aeneas, and which was more properly the mother of Rome than Troy herself, was provoked to battle by Tullus Hostilius, king of Rome, and in the conflict both inflicted and received such damage that at length both parties wearied of the struggle. It was then devised that the war should be decided by the combat of three twin brothers from each army. From the Romans the three Horatii stood forward, and from the Albans the three Curiatii. Two of the Horatii were overcome and disposed of by the Curiatii, but that by the remaining Horatius the three Curiatii were slain. Thus Rome remained victorious, but with such a sacrifice that only one survivor returned to his home. Whose was the loss on both sides? Whose the grief, of, but of the offspring of Aeneas, the descendants of Ascanius, the progeny of Venus, the grandsons of Jupiter? For this, too, was a worse-than-civil war, in which the belligerent states were mother and daughter. And to this combat of the three twin brothers there was added another atrocious and horrible catastrophe. For as the two nations had formerly been friendly, being related and neighbours, the sister of the Horatii had been betrothed to one of the Curiatii, and she, when she saw her brother wearing the spoils of her betrothed, burst into tears, and was slain by her own brother in his anger. To me this one girl seems to have been more humane than the whole Roman people. I cannot think her to blame for lamenting the man to whom already she had plighted her troth, or, as perhaps she was doing, for grieving that her brother should have slain him to whom he had promised his sister. For why do we praise the grief of Aeneas and Virgil over the enemy cut down even by his own hand? 
Why did Marcellus shed tears over the city of Syracuse, when he recollected, just before he destroyed its magnificence and meridian glory, and thought upon the common lot of all things? I demand, in the name of humanity, that if men are praised for tears shed over enemies conquered by themselves, a weak girl should not be counted criminal for bewailing her lover slaughtered by the hand of her brother. While, then, that maiden was weeping for the death of her betrothed inflicted by her brother's hand, Rome was rejoicing that such devastation had been wrought on her mother's state, and that she had purchased a victory with such an expenditure of the common blood of herself and the Albans. Why allege to me the mere names and words of glory and victory? Tear off the disguise of wild delusion, and look at the naked deeds. Weigh them naked, judge them naked. Let the charge be brought against Alba, as Troy was charged with adultery. There is no such charge, none like it found. The war was kindled only in order that there might sound in languid ears the cry of Tullus and of victory. This vice of restless ambition was the sole motive to that social and parricidal war, a vice which Sallust brands in passing, for when he has spoken with brief but hearty commendation of those primitive times in which life was spent without covetousness, and every one was sufficiently satisfied with what he had, he goes on, but after Cyrus and Asia and the Lacedaemonians and Athenians and Greece began to subdue cities and nations, and to account the lust of sovereignty a sufficient ground for war, and to reckon that the greatest glory consisted in the greatest empire, and so on, as I need not now quote. This lust of sovereignty disturbs and consumes the human race with frightful ills. By this lust Rome was overcome when she triumphed over Alba, and praising her own crime, called it glory. For as our scriptures say, The wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth. Away, then, with these deceitful masks, these deluding whitewashes, that things may be truthfully seen and scrutinized. Let no man tell me that this and the other was a great man, because he fought and conquered so-and-so. Gladiators fight and conquer, and this barbarism has its meed of praise, but I think it were better to take the consequences of any sloth than to seek the glory won by such arms. And if two gladiators entered the arena to fight, one being father, the other his son, who would endure such a spectacle, who would not be revolted by it? How, then, could that be a glorious war which a daughter-state waged against its mother? Or did it constitute a difference that the battlefield was not an arena, and that the wide plains were filled with the carcasses not of two gladiators, but of many of the flower of two nations, and that those contests were viewed not by the amphitheatre, but by the whole world, and furnished a profane spectacle, both to those alive at the time, and to their posterity, so long as the fame of it is handed down? Yet these gods, guardians of the Roman Empire, and, as it were, theatric spectators of such contests as these, were not satisfied until the sister of the Horatii was added by her brother's sword as a third victim from the Roman side, so that Rome herself, though she won the day, should have as many deaths to mourn. Afterwards, as a fruit of the victory, Alba was destroyed, though it was there the Trojan gods had formed a third asylum after Ilium had been sacked by the Greeks, and after they had left Lavinium, where Aeneas had founded a kingdom in a land of banishment. But probably Alba was destroyed, because from it too the gods had migrated, in their usual fashion, as Virgil says, gone from each fane, each sacred shrine, are those who made this realm divine." gone indeed, and from now their third asylum, that Rome might seem all the wiser in committing herself to them after they had deserted three other cities. Alba, whose king Amulius had banished his brother, displeased them. Rome, whose king Romulus had slain his brother, pleased them. But before Alba was destroyed, its population, they say, was amalgamated with the inhabitants of Rome, so that the two cities were one. 
Well, admitting it was so, yet the fact remains that the city of Ascanius, the third retreat of the Trojan gods, was destroyed by the daughter city. Besides, to effect this pitiful conglomerate of the war's leavings, much blood was spilt on both sides. And how shall I speak in detail of the same wars, so often renewed in subsequent reigns, though they seem to have been finished by great victories, and of wars that time after time were brought to an end by great slaughters, and which yet time after time were renewed by the posterity of those who had made peace and struck treaties? Of this calamitous history we have no small proof in the fact that no subsequent king closed the gates of war, and therefore, with all their tutelar gods, no one of them reigned in peace. CHAPTER fifteen. And what was the end of the kings themselves? Of Romulus a flattering legend tells us that he was assumed into heaven. But certain Roman historians relate that he was torn in pieces by the Senate for his ferocity, and that a man, Julius Proculus, was suborned to give out that Romulus had appeared to him, and through him commanded the Roman people to worship him as a god, and that in this way the people who were beginning to resent the action of the Senate were quieted and pacified. For an eclipse of the sun had also happened, and this was attributed to the divine power of Romulus by the ignorant multitude, who did not know that it was brought about by the fixed laws of the sun's course, though this grief of the sun might rather have been considered proof that Romulus had been slain, and that the crime was indicated by this deprivation of the sun's light, as in truth was the case when the Lord was crucified through the cruelty and impiety of the Jews. For it is sufficiently demonstrated that this latter obscuration of the sun did not occur by the natural laws of the heavenly bodies, because it was then the Jewish Passover, which is held only at full moon, whereas natural eclipses of the sun happen only at the last quarter of the moon. Cicero, too, shows plainly enough that the apotheosis of Romulus was imaginary rather than real, when, even while he is praising him in one of Scipio's remarks in the De Republica, he says, Such a reputation had he acquired that when he suddenly disappeared during an eclipse of the sun he was supposed to have been assumed into the number of the gods, which could be supposed of no mortal who had not the highest reputation for virtue. By these words, he suddenly disappeared, we are to understand that he was mysteriously made away with by the violence either of the tempest or of a murderous assault. For their other writers speak not only of an eclipse, but of a sudden storm also, which certainly either afforded opportunity for the crime, or itself made an end of Romulus and of Tullus Hostilius, who was the third king of Rome, and who was himself destroyed by lightning, Cicero in the same book says, that he was not supposed to have been deified by this death, possibly because the Romans were unwilling to vulgarize the promotion they were assured or persuaded of in the case of Romulus, lest they should bring it into contempt by gratuitously assigning it to all and sundry. In one of his invectives, too, he says in round terms, the founder of this city, Romulus, we have raised to immortality and divinity by kindly celebrating his services, implying that his deification was not real, but reputed, and called so by courtesy on account of his virtues. In the dialogue Hortensius, too, while speaking of the regular eclipses of the sun, he says that they produced the same darkness as covered the death of Romulus, which happened during an eclipse of the sun. Here you see he does not at all shrink from speaking of his death, for Cicero was more of a reasoner than an eulogist. The other kings of Rome, too, with the exception of Numa Pompilius and Ancus Martius, who died natural deaths, what horrible ends they had! Tullus Hostilius, the conqueror and destroyer of Alba, was, as I said, himself and all his house consumed by lightning. Priscus Tarquinius was slain by his predecessor's sons. Servius Tullius was foully murdered by his son-in-law Tarquinius Superbus, who succeeded him on the throne. 
nor did so flagrant a parasite committed against Rome's best king drive from their altars and shrines those gods who were said to have been moved by Paris's adultery to treat poor Troy in this style, and abandon it to the fire and sword of the Greeks. Nay, the very Tarquin who had murdered was allowed to succeed his father-in-law and this infamous parricide, during the reign he had secured by murder, was allowed to triumph in many victorious wars, and to build a capital from their spoils, the gods meanwhile not departing, but abiding and abetting, and suffering their king Jupiter to preside and reign over them in that very splendid capital, the work of a parricide. For he did not build the capital in the days of his innocence, and then suffer banishment for subsequent crimes, but to that reign during which he built the capital, he won his way by unnatural crime." and when he was afterwards banished by the Romans and forbidden the city, it was not for his own but in his son's wickedness, in the affair of Lucretia, a crime perpetrated not only without his cognizance, but in his absence. For at that time he was besieging Ardea, and fighting Rome's battles, and we cannot say what he would have done had he been aware of his son's crime. Notwithstanding, though his opinion was neither inquired into nor ascertained, the people stripped him of royalty, and when he returned to Rome with his army, it was admitted, but he was excluded, abandoned by his troops, and the gates shut in his face. And yet, after he had appealed to the neighboring states, and tormented the Romans with calamitous but unsuccessful wars, and when he was deserted by the ally on whom he most depended, despairing of regaining the kingdom, he lived a retired and quiet life for fourteen years, as it is reported, in Tusculum, a Roman town, where he grew old in his wife's company, and at last terminated his days in a much more desirable fashion than his father-in-law, who had perished by the hand of his son-in-law, his own daughter abetting, if report be true." And this Tarquin the Romans called not the cruel, nor the infamous, but the proud, their own pride perhaps resenting his tyrannical airs. So little did they make of his murdering their best king, his own father-in-law, that they elected him their own king. I wonder if it was not even more criminal in them, to reward so bountifully so great a criminal. And yet there was no word of the gods abandoning the altars, unless perhaps someone will say in defense of the gods that they remained at Rome for the purpose of punishing the Romans, rather than of aiding and profiting them, seducing them by empty victories, and wearing them out by severe wars. Such was the life of the Romans under the kings during the much-praised epoch of the state which extends to the expulsion of Tarquinius Superbus in the 243rd year, during which all those victories which were brought with so much blood and such disasters hardly pushed Rome's dominion twenty miles from the city, a territory which would by no means bear comparison with that of any petty Gaetulian state. CHAPTER Sixteen. To this epoch let us add also that of which Sallust says, that it was ordered with justice and moderation, while the fear of Tarquin and of a war with Etruria was impending. For so long as the Etrurians aided the efforts of Tarquin to regain the throne, Rome was convulsed with distressing war. And therefore he says that the state was ordered with justice and moderation through the pressure of fear, not through the influence of equity. And in this very brief period how calamitous a year was that in which consuls were first created, when the kingly power was abolished. They did not fulfill their term of office, for Junius Brutus deprived his colleague Lucius Tarquinius Collatinus, and banished him from the city, and shortly after he himself fell in battle, at once slaying and slain, having formerly put to death his own sons and his brothers-in-law, because he had discovered that they were conspiring to restore Tarquin. It is this deed that Virgil shudders to record, even while he seems to praise it, for when he says, And call his own rebellious seed for menaced liberty to bleed, he immediately exclaims, Unhappy father, howsoe'er the deed be judged by after days. That is to say, let posterity judge the deed as they please, let them praise and extol the father who slew his sons, he is unhappy. 
And then he adds, as if to console so unhappy a man, His country's love shall all o'erbear an unextinguished thirst of praise. In the tragic end of Brutus, who slew his own sons, and though he slew his enemy, Tarquin's son, yet could not survive him, but was survived by Tarquin the elder, does not the innocence of his colleague Calatinus seem to be vindicated, who, though a good citizen, suffered the same punishment as Tarquin himself, when that tyrant was banished? For Brutus himself is said to have been a relative of Tarquin. But Calatinus had the misfortune to bear not only the blood, but the name of Tarquin. To change his name, then, not his country, would have been his fit penalty, to abridge his name by this word, and be called simply Lucius Calatinus. But he was not compelled to lose what he could lose without detriment, but was stripped of the honour of the first consulship, and was banished from the land he loved. Is this, then, the glory of Brutus, this injustice, alike detestable and profitless to the Republic? Was it to this he was driven by his country's love and unextinguished thirst of praise? When Tarquin the tyrant was expelled, Lucius Tarquinius Calatinus, the husband of Lucretia, was created consul along with Brutus. How justly the people acted in looking more to the character than the name of a citizen! How unjustly Brutus acted in depriving of honour and country his colleague in that new office, whom he might have deprived of his name if it were so offensive to him! Such were the ills, such the disasters, which fell out when the government was ordered with justice and moderation. Lucretius, too, who succeeded Brutus, was carried off by disease before the end of that same year. So P. Valerius, who succeeded Calatinus, and M. Horatius, who filled the vacancy occasioned by the death of Lucretius, completed that disastrous and funereal year which had five consuls. Such was the year in which the Roman Republic inaugurated the new honour and office of the consulship. End of Book 1, Chapters 1 through 16. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org. Book 3, Chapters 17 through 31 of The City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God, by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book 3, Chapter 17. After this, when their fears were gradually diminished, not because the wars ceased, but because they were not so furious, that period in which things were ordered with justice and moderation drew to an end, and there followed that state of matters which Sallust thus briefly sketches. Then began the patricians to oppress the people as slaves, to condemn them to death or scourging, as the kings had done, to drive them from their holdings, and to tyrannize over those who had no property to lose. The people, overwhelmed by these oppressive measures, and most of all by usury, and obliged to contribute both money and personal service to the constant wars, at length took arms and seceded to Mount Aventine and Mount Caesar, and thus secured for themselves tribunes and protective laws. But it was only the second Punic war that put an end on both sides to discord and strife. But why should I spend time in writing such things, or make others spend it in reading them? Let the terse summary of Sallust suffice to intimate the misery of the Republic through all that long period till the Second Punic War, how it was distracted from without by unceasing wars, and torn with civil broils and dissensions. 
so that those victories they boast were not the substantial joys of the happy, but the empty comforts of wretched men, and seductive incitements to turbulent men to concoct disasters upon disasters. And let not the good and prudent Romans be angry at our saying this, and indeed we need neither deprecate nor denounce their anger, for we know that they will harbour none. For we speak no more severely than their own authors, and much less elaborately and strikingly. Yet they diligently read these authors, and compel their children to learn them. But they who are angry, what would they do to me were I to say what Sallust says? Frequent mobs, seditions, and at last civil wars became common, while a few leading men on whom the masses were dependent affected supreme power under the seemly pretense of seeking the good of senate and people. Citizens were judged good or bad without reference to their loyalty to the republic, for all were equally corrupt, but the wealthy and dangerously powerful were esteemed good citizens, because they maintained the existing state of things. Now if those historians judged that an honourable freedom of speech required that they should not be silent regarding the blemishes of their own state, which they have in many places loudly applauded in their ignorance of that other and true city in which citizenship is an everlasting dignity, what does it become us to do whose liberty ought to be so much greater, as our hope in God is better and more assured, when they impute to our Christ the calamities of this age, in order that men of the less instructed and weaker sort may be alienated from that city in which alone eternal and blessed life can be enjoyed? Nor do we utter against their gods anything more horrible than their own authors do, whom they read and circulate. For indeed all that we have said we have derived from them, and there is much more to say of a worse kind which we are unable to say. Where then were those gods who were supposed to be justly worshipped for the slender and delusive prosperity of this world, when the Romans, who were seduced to their service by lying wiles, were harassed by such calamities? Where were they when Valerius the consul was killed while defending the capital that had been fired by exiles and slaves? He was himself better able to defend the temple of Jupiter than that crowd of divinities with their most high and mighty king, whose temple he came to the rescue of, were able to defend him. Where were they when the city, worn out with unceasing seditions, was waiting in some kind of calm for the return of the ambassadors who had been sent to Athens to borrow laws, and was desolated by dreadful famine and pestilence? Where were they when the people, again distressed with famine, created for the first time a prefect of the market, and when Spurius Melius, who, as the famine increased, distributed corn to the famishing masses, was accused of aspiring to royalty, and at the instance of this same prefect, and on the authority of the superannuated dictator L. Quintius, was put to death by Quintus Servilius, master of the horse, an event which occasioned a serious and dangerous riot. Where were they when that very severe pestilence visited Rome, on account of which the people, after long and wearisome and useless supplications of the helpless gods, conceived the idea of celebrating Lectisternia, which had never been done before? That is to say, they set couches in honour of the gods, which accounts for the name of this sacred rite, or rather sacrilege. Where were they when, during ten successive years of reverses, the Roman army suffered frequent and great losses among the Veians, and would have been destroyed but for the succour of furious Camulus, who was afterwards banished by an ungrateful country? Where were they when the Gauls took, sacked, burned, and desolated Rome? Where were they when that memorable pestilence wrought such destruction, in which furious Camulus too perished, who first defended the ungrateful republic from the Veians, and afterwards saved it from the Gauls? Nay, during this plague they introduced a new pestilence of scenic entertainments, which spread its more fatal contagion not to the bodies but the morals of the Romans. 
nor were they when another frightful pestilence visited the city. I mean the poisonings imputed to an incredible number of noble Roman matrons, whose characters were infected with a disease more fatal than any plague. Or when both consuls at the head of the army were beset by the Samnites and the Caudine Forks, and forced to strike a shameful treaty, six hundred Roman knights being kept as hostages, while the troops, having laid down their arms and being stripped of everything, were made to pass under the yoke with one garment each. Or when, in the midst of a serious pestilence, lightning struck the Roman camp and killed many. Or when Rome was driven, by the violence of another intolerable plague, to send to Epidaurus for Aesculapius as a god of medicine, since the frequent adulteries of Jupiter in his youth had not perhaps left this king of all, who so long reigned in the capital, any leisure for the study of medicine. Or when, at one time, the Lucanians, Brucians, Samnites, Tuscans, and Senonian Gauls conspired against Rome, and first slew her ambassadors, then overthrew an army under the praetor, putting to the sword thirteen thousand men, besides the commander and seven tribunes. Or when the people, after the serious and long-continued disturbances at Rome, at last plundered the city and withdrew to Janiculus, a danger so grave that Hortensius was created dictator, an office which they had recourse to only in extreme emergencies, and he, having brought back the people, died while yet he retained his office, an event without precedent in the case of any dictator, and which was a shame to those gods who had now Aesculapius among them. At that time, indeed, so many wars were everywhere engaged in, that through scarcity of soldiers they enrolled for military service the proletarii, who received this name because, being too poor to equip for military service, they had leisure to beget offspring. Pyrrhus, king of Greece, and at that time of widespread renown, was invited by the Tarentines to enlist himself against Rome. It was to him that Apollo, when consulted regarding the issue of his enterprise, uttered with some pleasantry so ambiguous an oracle, that whichever alternative happened, the god himself should be counted divine. For he so worded the oracle, that whether Pyrrhus was conquered by the Romans, or the Romans by Pyrrhus, the soothsaying god would securely await the issue. And then what frightful massacres of both armies ensued! Yet Pyrrhus remained conqueror, and would have been now able to proclaim Apollo a true diviner, as he understood the oracle, had not the Romans been the conquerors in the next engagement. And while such disastrous wars were being waged, a terrible disease broke out among the women. For the pregnant women died before delivery. And Aesculapius, I fancy, excused himself in this matter, on the ground that he professed to be arch-physician, not midwife. Cattle, too, similarly perished, so that it was believed that the whole race of animals was destined to become extinct. Then what shall I say of that memorable winter in which the weather was so incredibly severe that in the forum frightfully deep snow lay for forty days together, and the Tiber was frozen? Had such things happened in our time, what accusations we should have heard from our enemies? And that other great pestilence which raged so long and carried off so many, what shall I say of it? spite of all the drugs of Aesculapius, it only grew worse in its second year, till at last recourse was had to the Sibylline books, a kind of oracle which, as Cicero says in his De Divinatione, owes significance to its interpreters, who make doubtful conjectures as they can or as they wish. In this instance the cause of the plague was said to be that so many temples had been used as private residences, and thus Aesculapius, for the present, escaped the charge of either ignominious negligence or want of skill. But why were so many allowed to occupy sacred tenements without interference, unless because supplication had long been addressed in vain to such a crowd of gods, and so by degrees the sacred places were deserted of worshippers, and being thus vacant, could without offence be put at least to some human uses? 
and the temples which were at that time laboriously recognized and restored that the plague might be stayed, fell afterwards into disuse, and were again devoted to the same human uses. Had they not thus lapsed into obscurity, it could not have been pointed to as proof of Varro's great erudition, that in his work on sacred places he cites so many that were unknown. Meanwhile the restoration of the temples procured no cure of the plague, but only a fine excuse for the gods. CHAPTER Eighteen. In the Punic Wars, again, when victory hung so long in the balance between the two kingdoms, when two powerful nations were straining every nerve and using all their resources against one another, how many smaller kingdoms were crushed, how many large and flourishing cities were demolished, how many states were overwhelmed and ruined, how many districts and lands far and near were desolated! How often were the victors on either side vanquished! What multitudes of men, both of those actually in arms and of others, were destroyed! What huge navies, too, were crippled in engagements, or were sunk by every kind of marine disaster! Were we to attempt to recount or mention these calamities, we should become writers of history. At that period Rome was mightily perturbed, and resorted to vain and ludicrous expedients. On the authority of the Sibylline books, the secular games were reappointed, which had been inaugurated a century before, but had faded into oblivion in happier times. The games consecrated to the infernal gods were also renewed by the pontiffs, for they too had sunk into disuse in the better times. And no wonder, for when they were renewed, the great abundance of dying men made all hell rejoice at its riches, and give itself up to sport. For certainly the ferocious wars, and disastrous quarrels, and bloody victories, now on one side and now on the other, though most calamitous to men, afforded great sport and a rich banquet to the devils. But in the first Punic War there was no more disastrous event than the Roman defeat in which Regulus was taken. We made mention of him in the two former books as an incontestably great man, who had before conquered and subdued the Carthaginians, and who would have put an end to the first Punic War, had not an inordinate appetite for praise and glory prompted him to impose on the worn-out Carthaginians harder conditions than they could bear. If the unlooked-for captivity and unseemly bondage of this man, his fidelity to his oath, and his surpassingly cruel death, do not bring a blush to the face of the gods, it is true that they are brazen and bloodless." Nor were there wanting at that time very heavy disasters within the city itself, for the Tiber was extraordinarily flooded, and destroyed almost all the lower parts of the city, some buildings being carried away by the violence of the torrent, while others were soaked to rottenness by the water that stood round them even after the flood was gone. This visitation was followed by a fire which was still more destructive, for it consumed some of the loftier buildings round the Forum, and spared not even its own proper temple, that of Vesta, in which virgins chosen for this honour, or rather for this punishment, had been employed in conferring, as it were, everlasting life on fire, by ceaselessly feeding it with fresh fuel. But at the time we speak of, the fire in the temple was not content with being kept alive. It raged and when the virgins, scared by its vehemence, were unable to save those fatal images which had already brought destruction on three cities in which they had been received, Metellus the priest, forgetful of his own safety, rushed in and rescued the sacred things, though he was half-roasted in doing so. For either the fire did not recognize even him, or else the goddess of fire was there, a goddess who would not have fled from the fire supposing she had been there. But here you see how a man could be of greater service to Vesta than she could be to him. Now if these gods could not avert the fire from themselves, what help against flames or flood could they bring to the state of which they were the reputed guardians? Facts have shown that they were useless. 
these objections of ours would be idle if our adversaries maintain that their idols are consecrated rather as symbols of things eternal than to secure the blessings of time and that thus though the symbols like all material and visible things might perish no damage thereby resulted to the things for the sake of which they had been consecrated while as for the images themselves they could be renewed again for the same purposes they had formerly served but with lamentable blindness they supposed that through the intervention of perishable gods the earthly well-being and temporal prosperity of the state can be preserved from perishing and so when they were reminded that even when the gods remained among them this well-being and prosperity were blighted they blushed to change the opinion they were unable to defend chapter nineteen as to the second punic war it were tedious to recount the disasters it brought on both the nations engaged in so protracted and shifting a war that by the acknowledgment even of those writers who have made it their object not so much to narrate the wars as to eulogize the dominion of rome the people who remained victorious were less like conquerors than conquered for when hannibal poured out of spain over the pyrenees and overran gaul and burst through the alps and during his whole course gathered strength by plundering and subduing as he went and inundated italy like a torrent how bloody were the wars and how continuous the engagements that were fought how often were the romans vanquished how many towns went over to the enemy and how many were taken and subdued what fearful battles there were and how often did the defeat of the romans shed lustre on the arms of hannibal and what shall i say of the wonderfully crushing defeat at cannae where even hannibal cruel as he was was yet sated with the blood of his bitterest enemies and gave orders that they be spared from this field of battle he sent to Carthage three bushels of gold rings, signifying that so much of the rank of Rome had that day fallen, that it was easier to give an idea of it by measure than by numbers, and that the frightful slaughter of the common rank and file whose bodies lay undistinguished by the ring, and who were numerous in proportion to their meanness, was rather to be conjectured than accurately reported. In fact, such was the scarcity of soldiers after this, that the Romans impressed their criminals on the promise of impunity, and their slaves by the bribe of liberty, and out of these infamous classes did not so much recruit as create an army. But these slaves, or, to give them all their titles, these freedmen, who were enlisted to do battle for the Republic of Rome, lacked arms, and so they took arms from the temples, as if the Romans were saying to their gods, lay down those arms you have held so long in vain if by chance our slaves may be able to use to purpose what you our gods have been impotent to use at that time too the public treasury was too low to pay the soldiers and private resources were used for public purposes and so generously did individuals contribute to their property that saving the gold ring and bulla which each wore the pitiful mark of his rank no senator and much less any of the other orders and tribes reserved any gold for his own use but if in our day they were reduced to this poverty, who would be able to endure their reproaches, barely endurable as they are now, when more money is spent on actors for the sake of a superfluous gratification, than was then dispersed to the legions? CHAPTER Twenty. But among all the disasters of the Second Punic War there occurred none more lamentable or calculated to excite deeper complaint than the fate of the Saguntines. This city of Spain, eminently friendly to Rome, was destroyed by its fidelity to the Roman people. For when Hannibal had broken treaty with the Romans, he sought occasions for provoking them to war, and accordingly made a fierce assault upon Saguntum. When this was reported at Rome, ambassadors were sent to Hannibal, urging him to raise the siege, and when this remonstrance was neglected, they proceeded to Carthage, lodged complaint against the breaking of the treaty, and returned to Rome without accomplishing their object. Meanwhile the siege went on 
and in the eighth or ninth month this opulent but ill-fated city, dear as it was to its own state and to Rome, was taken, and subjected to treatment which one cannot read, much less narrate, without horror. And yet, because it bears directly on the matter in hand, I will briefly touch upon it. First, then, famine wasted the Saguntines, so that even human corpses were eaten by some, so at least it is recorded. Subsequently, when thoroughly worn out, that they might at least escape the ignominy of falling into the hands of Hannibal, they publicly erected a huge funeral pile, and cast themselves into its flames, while at the same time they slew their children and themselves with a sword. Could these gods, these debauchees and gourmands, whose mouths water for fat sacrifices, and whose lips utter lying divinations, could they not do anything in a case like this? Could they not interfere for the preservation of a city closely allied to the Roman people, or prevent it perishing for its fidelity to that alliance of which they themselves had been the mediators? Saguntum, faithfully keeping the treaty it had entered into before these gods, and to which it had firmly bound itself by an oath, was besieged, taken, and destroyed by a perjured person. If afterwards, when Hannibal was close to the walls of Rome, it was the gods who terrified him with lightning and tempest, and drove him to a distance, why, I ask, did they not thus interfere before? For I make bold to say that this demonstration with the tempest would have been more honourably made in defence of the allies of Rome, who were in danger on account of their reluctance to break faith with the Romans, and had no resources of their own, than in defence of the Romans themselves, who were fighting in their own cause, and had abundant resources to oppose Hannibal." If, then, they had been the guardians of Roman prosperity and glory, they would have preserved that glory from the stain of the, this Sagantine disaster, and how silly it is to believe that Rome was preserved from the destruction at the hands of Hannibal by the guardian care of those gods who were unable to rescue the city of Saguntum from perishing through its fidelity to the alliance of Rome. If the population of Saguntum had been Christian, and had suffered as it did for the Christian faith, though, of course, Christians would not have used fire and sword against their own persons, they would have suffered with that hope which springs from faith in Christ, the hope not of a brief temporal reward, but of unending and eternal bliss. What, then, will the advocates and apologists of these gods say in their defence, when charged with the blood of these Saguntines? For they are professedly worshipped and invoked for this very purpose of securing prosperity in this fleeting and transitory life. Can anything be said but what was alleged in the case of Regulus's death? For though there is a difference between the two cases, the one being an individual, the other a whole community, yet the cause of destruction was in both cases the keeping of their plighted troth. For it was this which made Regulus willing to return to his enemies, and this which made the Saguntines unwilling to revolt to their enemies. Does then the keeping of faith provoke the gods to anger? Or is it possible that not only individuals but even entire communities perish while the gods are propitious to them? Let our adversaries choose which alternative they will. If, on the one hand, those gods are enraged at the keeping of faith, let them enlist perjured persons as their worshippers. If, on the other hand, men and states can suffer great and terrible calamities, and at last perish while favoured by the gods, then does their worship not produce happiness as its fruit. Let those, therefore, who suppose that they have fallen into distress because their religious worship has been abolished, lay aside their anger, for it were quite possible that did the gods not only remain with them, but regard them with favour, they might yet be left to mourn an unhappy lot, or might even, like Regulus and the Saguntines, be horribly tormented, and at last perish miserably. CHAPTER Twenty One. 
Omitting many things that I may not exceed the limits of the work I have proposed to myself, I come to the epoch between the second and last Punic wars, during which, according to Sallust, the Romans lived with the greatest virtue and concord. Now in this period of virtue and harmony, the great Scipio, the liberator of Rome and Italy, who had with surprising ability brought to a close the second Punic war, that horrible, destructive, dangerous contest, who had defeated Hannibal and subdued Carthage, and whose whole life is said to have been dedicated to the gods and cherished in their temples. This Scipio, after such a triumph, was obliged to yield to the accusations of his enemies, and to leave his country, which his valour had saved and liberated, to spend the remainder of his days in the town of Liternum, so indifferent to a recall from exile that he is said to have given orders that not even his remains should lie in his ungrateful country. It was at that time also that the proconsul Manlius, after subduing the Galatians, introduced into Rome the luxury of Asia more destructive than all hostile armies. It was then that iron bedsteads and expensive carpets were first used, then too that female singers were admitted at banquets, and other licentious abominations were introduced. But at present I meant to speak not of the evils men voluntarily practice, but of those they suffer in spite of themselves. So that the case of Scipio, who succumbed to his enemies, and died in exile from the country he had rescued, was mentioned by me as being pertinent to the present discussion. For this was the reward he received from those Roman gods whose temples he saved from Hannibal, and who were worshipped only for the sake of securing temporal happiness. But since Sallust, as we have seen, declares that the manners of Rome were never better than at that time, I therefore judged it right to mention the Asiatic luxury then introduced, that it might be seen that what he says is true, only when that period is compared with the others, during which the morals were certainly worse, and the factions more violent. For at that time, I mean between the second and third Punic War, that notorious Lex Voconia was passed, which prohibited a man from making a woman, even an only daughter, his heir than which law I am at a loss to conceive what could be more unjust. It is true that in the interval between these two Punic wars the misery of Rome was somewhat less. Abroad, indeed, their forces were consumed by wars, yet also consoled by victories, while at home there were not such disturbances as at other times. But when the last Punic War had terminated in the utter destruction of Rome's rival, which quickly succumbed to the other Scipio, who thus earned for himself the surname of Africanus, then the Roman Republic was overwhelmed with such a host of ills, which sprang from the corrupt manners induced by prosperity and security, that the sudden overthrow of Carthage is seen to have injured Rome more seriously than her long-continued hostility. During the whole subsequent period down to the time of Caesar Augustus, who seems to have entirely deprived the Romans of liberty, a liberty indeed which in their own judgment was no longer glorious, but full of broils and dangers, and which now was quite enervated and languishing, and who submitted all things again to the will of a monarch, and infused as it were a new life into the sickly old age of the Republic, and inaugurated a fresh regime. During this whole period, I say, many military disasters were sustained on a variety of occasions, all of which I here pass by. There was specially the Treaty of Numantia, blotted as it was with extreme disgrace. For the sacred chickens, they say, flew out of the coop, and thus augured disaster to Mancinus, the consul. Just as if, during all these years in which that little city of Numantia had withstood the besieging army of Rome, and had become a terror to the Republic, the other generals had all marched against it under unfavourable auspices. CHAPTER Twenty Two. 
These things, I say, I pass in silence, but I can by no means be silent regarding the order given by Mithridates, king of Asia, that on one day all Roman citizens residing anywhere in Asia, or great numbers of them were following their private business, should be put to death, and this order was executed. How miserable a spectacle was then presented, when each man was suddenly and treacherously murdered wherever he happened to be, in the field or on the road, in the town, in his own home, or in the street, in market, or temple, in bed, or at table. Think of the groans of the dying, the tears of the spectators, and even of the executioners themselves. For how cruel a necessity was it that compelled the hosts of these victims, not only to see these abominable butcheries in their own houses, but even to perpetrate them, to change their countenance suddenly from the bland kindliness of friendship, and in the midst of peace set about the business of war, and, shall I say, give and receive wounds, the slain being pierced in body, the slayer in spirit? Had all these murdered persons, then, despised auguries? Had they neither public nor household gods to consult when they left their homes and set out on that fatal journey? If they had not, our adversaries have no reason to complain of these Christian times in this particular, since long ago the Romans despised auguries as idle. If, on the other hand, they did consult omens, let them tell us what good they got thereby, even when such things were not prohibited, but authorized by human, if not by divine law. CHAPTER Twenty Three. But let us now mention as succinctly as possible those disasters which were still more vexing, because nearer home. I mean those discords which are erroneously called civil, since they destroy civil interests. The seditions had now become urban wars in which blood was freely shed, and in which parties raged against one another, not with wrangling and verbal contention, but with physical force and arms. What a sea of Roman blood was shed! What desolations and devastations were occasioned in Italy by wars social, wars servile, wars civil! Before the Latins began the social war against Rome, all the animals used in the service of man—dogs, horses, asses, oxen, and all the rest that are subject to man—suddenly grew wild and forgot their domesticated tameness, forsook their stalls and wandered at large, and could not be closely approached either by strangers or their own masters without danger. If this was a portent, how serious a calamity must have been portended by a plague which, whether portent or no, was in itself a serious calamity. Had it happened in our day, the heathen would have been more rabid against us than our animals were against them. CHAPTER Twenty Four. The civil wars originated in the seditions which the Gracchi excited regarding the agrarian laws, for they were minded to divide among the people the lands which were wrongfully possessed by the nobility. But the reform and abuse of so long standing was an enterprise full of peril, or rather, as the event proved, of destruction. For what disasters accompanied the death of the elder Gracchus? When slaughter ensued when, shortly after, the younger brother met the same fate. For noble and ignoble were indiscriminately massacred, and this not by legal authority and procedure, but by mobs and armed rioters. After the death of the younger Gracchus, the consul Lucius Alpimius, who had given battle to him within the city, and had defeated and put to sword both himself and his confederates, and had massacred many of the citizens, instituted judicial examination of others, and is reported to have put to death as many as three thousand men. From this it may be gathered how many fell in the riotous encounters, when the result even of a judicial investigation was so bloody. The assassin of Gracchus himself sold his head to the consul for its weight in gold, such being the previous agreement. In this massacre, too, Marcus Fulvius, a man of consular rank with all his children, was put to death. CHAPTER Twenty Five. 
A pretty decree of the Senate it was, truly, by which the Temple of Concord was built on the spot where that disastrous rising had taken place, and where so many citizens of every rank had fallen. I suppose it was that the monument of the Gracchi's punishment might strike the eye and affect the memory of the pleaders. But what was this but to deride the gods by building a temple to that goddess who, had she been in the city, would not have suffered herself to be torn by such dissensions? Or was it that Concord was chargeable with that bloodshed because she had deserted the minds of the citizens, and was therefore incarcerated in that temple? For if they had any regard to consistency, why did they not rather erect on that site a temple of discord? Or is there a reason for Concord being a goddess, while discord is none? Does the distinction of Labeo hold here, who would have made the one a good, the other an evil deity? a distinction which seems to have been suggested to him by the mere fact of his observing at Rome a temple to fever, as well as one to health. But on the same ground discord as well as concord ought to be deified. A hazardous venture the Romans made in provoking so wicked a goddess, and in forgetting that the destruction of Troy had been occasioned by her taking offence. For being indignant that she was not invited with the other gods to the nuptials of Peleus and Thetis, she created dissension among the three goddesses by sending in the golden apple, which occasioned strife in heaven, victory to Venus, the rape of Helen, and the destruction of Troy. Wherefore, if she was perhaps offended that the Romans had not thought her worthy of a temple among the other gods in their city, and therefore disturbed the state with such tumults, to how much fiercer passion would she be roused when she saw the temple of her adversary erected on the scene of that massacre, or, in other words, on the scene of her own handiwork? Those wise and learned men are enraged at our laughing at these follies, and yet being worshippers of good and bad divinities alike, they cannot escape this dilemma about concord and discord. Either they have neglected the worship of these goddesses, and preferred fever and war, to whom there are shrines erected of great antiquity, or they have worshipped them, and after all concord has abandoned them, and discord has tempestuously hurled them into civil wars. CHAPTER Twenty Six. But they supposed that in erecting the temple of Concord within the view of the orators, as a memorial of the punishment and death of the Gracchi, they were raising an effectual obstacle to sedition. How much effect it had is indicated by the still more deplorable wars that followed. For after this the orators endeavoured not to avoid the example of the Gracchi, but to surpass their projects, as did Lucius Saturninus, a tribune of the people, and Caius Servilius the praetor, and sometime after Marcus Drusus, all of whom stirred seditions which first of all occasioned bloodshed, and then the social wars by which Italy was grievously injured, and reduced to a piteously desolate and wasted condition. Then followed the servile war and the civil wars, and in them what battles were fought and what blood was shed, so that almost all the peoples of Italy, which formed the main strength of the Roman Empire, were conquered as if they were barbarians. Then even historians themselves find it difficult to explain how the servile war was begun by a very few, certainly less than seventy gladiators, what numbers of fierce and cruel men attached themselves to these, how many of the Roman generals this band defeated, and how it laid waste many districts and cities. And that was not the only servile war. The province of Macedonia, and subsequently Sicily and the sea-coast, were also depopulated by bands of slaves. And who can adequately describe, out of the horrible atrocities which the pirates first committed, or the wars they afterwards maintained against Rome? CHAPTER Twenty Seven. 
But when Marius, stained with the blood of his fellow-citizens, whom the rage of party had sacrificed, was in his turn vanquished and driven from the city, it had scarcely time to breathe freely, when, to use the words of Cicero, Cinna and Marius together returned and took possession of it. Then, indeed, the foremost men in the state were put to death, its lights quenched. Scylla afterwards avenged this cruel victory, but we need not say with what loss of life and with what ruin to the Republic. For of this vengeance, which was more destructive than if the crimes which it punished had been committed with impunity, Lucan says, the cure was excessive and too closely resembled the disease. The guilty perished, but when none but the guilty survived, and then private hatred and anger, unbridled by law, were allowed free indulgence. In that war between Marius and Scylla, besides those who fell on the field of battle, the city too was filled with corpses in its streets, squares, markets, theatres, and temples, so that it is not easy to reckon whether the victors slew more before or after victory than they might be, or because they were, victors. As soon as Marius triumphed and returned from exile, besides the butcheries everywhere perpetrated, the head of the consul Octavius was exposed in the rostrum, Caesar and Fimbria were assassinated in their own houses, the two Crassi, father and son, were murdered in one another's sight, Bebius and Numitorius were disemboweled by being dragged with hooks, Catullus escaped the hands of his enemies by drinking poison, Merula, the flamen of Jupiter, cut his veins and made a libation of his own blood to his god. Moreover, every one whose salutation Marius did not answer by giving his hand was at once cut down before his face. Chapter 28 Then followed the victory of Scylla, the so-called avenger of the cruelties of Marius. But not only was his victory purchased with great bloodshed, but when hostilities were finished, hostilities survived, and the subsequent peace was bloody as the war. To the former and still recent massacres of the elder Marius, the younger Marius, and Carbo, who belonged to the same party, added greater atrocities. For when Scylla approached, and they despaired not only of victory but of life itself, they made a promiscuous massacre of friends and foes. And not satisfied with staining every corner of Rome with blood, they besieged the Senate and led forth the senators to death from the Curia as from a prison. Mucius Chevola, the pontiff, was slain at the altar of Vesta, which he had clung to because no spot in Rome was more sacred than her temple, and his blood well-nigh extinguished the fire which was kept alive by the constant care of the virgins. Then Scylla entered the city victorious, after having slaughtered in the Villa Publica, not by combat, but by an order, seven thousand men who had surrendered and were therefore unarmed. So fierce was the rage of peace itself, even after the rage of war was extinct. Moreover, throughout the whole city every partisan of Scylla slew whom he pleased, so that the number of deaths went beyond computation, till it was suggested to Scylla that he should allow some to survive, that the victors might not be destitute of subjects. Then this furious and promiscuous license to murder was checked, and much relief was expressed at the publication of the prescription list, containing, though it did, the death warrant of two thousand men of the highest ranks, the senatorial and equestrian. The large number was indeed saddening, but it was consolatory that a limit was fixed, nor was the grief at the numbers slain so great as the joy that the rest were secure. But this very security, hard-hearted as it was, could not but bemoan the exquisite torture applied to some of those who had been doomed to die. For one was torn to pieces by the unarmed hands of the executioners, men treating a living man more savagely than wild beasts are used to tear an abandoned corpse. Another had his eyes dug out, and his limbs cut away bit by bit, and was forced to live a long while, or rather to die a long while, in such torture. 
Some celebrated cities were put up to auction, like farms, and one was collectively condemned to slaughter, just as an individual criminal would be condemned to death. These things were done in peace, when the war was over, not that victory might be more speedily obtained, but that after being obtained it might not be thought lightly of. Peace vied with war and cruelty, and surpassed it, for while war overthrew armed hosts, peace slew the defenceless. War gave liberty to him who was attacked to strike if he could. Peace granted to the survivors not life, but an unresisting death. CHAPTER Twenty Nine. What fury of foreign nations, what barbarian ferocity can compare with this victory of citizens over citizens? Which was more disastrous, more hideous, more bitter to Rome, the recent Gothic and the old Gallic invasion, or the cruelty displayed by Marius and Scylla and their partisans against men who were members of the same body as themselves? The Gauls indeed massacred all the senators they found in any part of the city except the capital, which alone was defended, but they at least sold life to those who were in the capital, though they might have starved them out if they could not have stormed it. The Goths again spared so many senators that it is the more surprising that they killed any. But Scylla, while Marius was still living, established himself as conqueror in the capital, which the Gauls had not violated, and thence issued his death warrants. And when Marius had escaped by flight, though destined to return more fierce and bloodthirsty than ever, Scylla issued from the capital even decrees of the Senate for the slaughter and confiscation of the property of many citizens. Then, when Scylla left, what did the Marian faction hold sacred or spare, when they gave no quarter even to Mucius, a citizen, a senator, a pontiff, and though clasping in piteous embrace the very altar in which, they say, reside the destinies of Rome? And that final prescription list of Scylla's, not to mention countless other massacres, dispatched more senators than the Goths could even plunder. CHAPTER Thirty. With what effrontery, then, with what assurance, with what impudence, with what folly, or rather insanity, do they refuse to impute these disasters to their own gods, and impute the present to our Christ? These bloody civil wars, more distressing by the avowal of their own historians than any foreign wars, and which were pronounced to be not merely calamitous, but absolutely ruinous to the Republic, began long before the coming of Christ, and gave birth to one another, so that a concatenation of unjustifiable causes led from the wars of Marius and Scylla to those of Sertorius and Catalan, of whom the one was prescribed, the other brought up by Scylla, from this to the war of Lepidus and Catullus, of whom the one wished to rescind, the other to defend the acts of Scylla, from this to the war of Pompey and Caesar, of whom Pompey had been a partisan of Scylla, whose power he equalled or even surpassed, while Caesar condemned Pompey's power because it was not his own, and yet exceeded it when Pompey was defeated and slain. From him the chain of civil wars extended to the second Caesar, afterwards called Augustus, and in whose reign Christ was born. For even Augustus himself waged many civil wars, and in these wars many of the foremost men perished, among them that skilful manipulator of the Republic, Cicero. Caius, Julius, Caesar, when he had conquered Pompey, though he used his victory with clemency, and granted to men of the opposite faction both life and honours, was suspected of aiming at royalty, and was assassinated in the Curia by a party of noble senators who had conspired to defend the liberty of the Republic. His power was then coveted by Antony a man of very different character, polluted and debased by every kind of vice, who was strenuously resisted by Cicero on the same plea of defending the liberty of the Republic. At this juncture that other Caesar, the adopted son of Caius, and afterwards, as I said, known by the name of Augustus, had made his debut as a young man of remarkable genius. This youthful Caesar was favoured by Cicero, in order that his influence might counteract that of Antony. 
for he hoped that Caesar would overthrow and blast the power of Antony and establish a free state, so blind and unaware of the future was he, for that very young man whose advancement and influence he was fostering allowed Cicero to be killed as the seal of an alliance with Antony, and subjected to his own rule the very liberty of the Republic in defence of which he had made so many orations. CHAPTER Thirty One. Let those who have no gratitude to Christ for his great benefits blame their own gods for these heavy disasters. For certainly, when these occurred, the altars of the gods were kept blazing, and there rose the mingled fragrance of Sabaean incense and fresh garlands. The priests were clothed with honor, the shrines were maintained in splendor, sacrifices, games, sacred ecstasies were common in the temples, while the blood of the citizens was being so freely shed, not only in remote places, but among the very altars of the gods. Cicero did not choose to seek sanctuary in a temple because Mucius had sought it there in vain. But they who most unpardonably calumniate this Christian era are the very men who either themselves fled for asylum to the places specially dedicated to Christ, or were led there by the barbarians that they might be safe. In short, not to recapitulate the many instances I have cited, and not to add to their number others which it were tedious to enumerate, this one thing I am persuaded of, and this every impartial judgment will readily acknowledge, that if the human race had received Christianity before the Punic Wars, and if the same desolating calamities which these wars brought upon Europe and Africa had followed the introduction of Christianity, there is no one of those who now accuse us who would not have attributed them to our religion." How intolerable would their accusations have been, at least so far as the Romans are concerned, if the Christian religion had been received and diffused prior to the invasion of the Gauls, or to the ruinous fires and floods which desolated Rome, or to those most calamitous of all events, the civil wars? And those other disasters, which were of so strange a nature that they were reckoned prodigies, had they happened since the Christian era, to whom but to the Christians would they have imputed these as crimes? I do not speak of those things which were rather surprising than hurtful, oxen speaking, unborn infants articulating some words in their mother's wombs, serpents flying, hens and women being changed into the other sex, and other similar prodigies which, whether true or false, are recorded not in their imaginative but in their historical works, and which do not injure but only astonish men. But when it rained earth, when it rained chalk, when it rained stones, not hailstones, but real stones, this certainly was calculated to do serious damage. We have read in their books that the fires of Etna, pouring down from the top of the mountain to the neighboring shore, caused the sea to boil so that rocks were burnt up, and the pitch of ships began to run, a phenomenon incredibly surprising, but at the same time no less hurtful. By the same violent heat they relate that on another occasion Sicily was filled with cinders, so that the houses of the city Catina were destroyed and buried under them, a calamity which moved the Romans to pity them, and remit their tribute for that year. One may also read that Africa, which had by that time become a province of Rome, was visited by a prodigious multitude of locusts, which, after consuming the fruit and foliage of the trees, were driven into the sea in one vast and measureless cloud, so that when they were drowned and cast upon the shore, the air was polluted, and so serious a pestilence produced, that in the kingdom of Massinissa alone, they say there perished eight hundred thousand persons, besides a much greater number in the neighboring districts. At Utica they assure us that of thirty thousand soldiers then garrisoning it, there survived only ten. Yet which of these disasters, suppose they happen now, would not be attributed to the Christian religion by those who thus thoughtlessly accuse us, and whom we are compelled to answer? 
and yet to their own gods they attribute none of these things, though they worship them for the sake of escaping lesser calamities of the same kind, and do not reflect that they who formerly worshipped them were not preserved from these serious disasters. End of Book 3, Chapters 17-31 through 31. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.